podcast this week, we have a lovely chat with the great Peter Dinklage, star of Roxanne remake, Cyrano. Oh, and we have a natter after After Love with the star of that film, the newly BAFTA-nominated Joanna Scanlon. All that and more on the movie podcast that thinks talking about a two-minute trailer for 90 minutes or so is just an act of utter folly. Wouldn't find us doing that, folks. <laughs> Wouldn't find us doing that at all. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast this week. We're back in the studio. We're back in the grey, depressing pod booth. <laughs> I wonder if we'll be in the grey, depressing pod booth next week uh, with my two colleagues of such lethal cunning. Geek Queen Helen O'Hara is here. Hello. Hello. And great big fucking nerve. There he is. Look at him. Look at him. <laughs> James Dyer is here. Hi, Chris. Okay, so I'm going to change things up a little bit. Uh, before we take our listener question, I'm going to do a quick bit of plugging, not in a sexual way. Wow. <laughs> You'll be delighted. Or indeed my hair. Although if anyone does want to plug my hair or indeed give me a transplant, then slide into my DMs. Oh boy. Uh, I will accept backstreet hair transplants. Not on my anus. What I meant oh was no. backstreet as in Please the back. Okay, so anyway, I just wanted to plug some stuff real quick. So uh, we did a trailer breakdown for Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, the new trailer that came out and we got a little bit carried away, folks, <laughs> and we may have done an hour and a half on a two-minute trailer. <laughs> hey, hey, in our defense, there was a TV spot as well. So there that's was like a TV two spot. and a half minutes. Yes. So really, when you think about it, it's pretty reasonable. <laughs> I love at one point, I think I cut, obviously I cut it out because you know, it was it was kind of a private conversation, but fuck it. I love at one point, Ben, we go past six o'clock and Ben points at his watch and goes, I really need to go in the next 10, 15 minutes. It was Valentine's Day. Because it was, it was Valentine's Day yeah. and it was after six o'clock and we were all off, officially off the clock. And then as we're wrapping up, Ben's like, should we do the TV spot as well? Because <laughs> you know what? You just want to talk about Doctor Strange, the multiverse of madness. It just, it just, you just get carried away. It's you what just, happens. It is what happens. What, he, what you got to do. Uh, I missed we, all of this, so I sent a variant in my place. <laughs> Clearly, he got lost. Yes, and uh, so there's lots of stuff about that. If you want to check that out, if you are interested in our thoughts on that trailer, then that is on your podcast feed right now. Uh, also, this week we did the the first of our offerings from episode 500, the all day celebration of episode 500. That isn't episode 500. So all the other stuff we did, that was all recorded, and that will be up at some point as a podcast and the first thing up was our Hot Fuzz celebration chat with Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg so that is up for you guys on the podcast feed as well but first off I wanted to talk about this lovely thing I have in front of me mm. Empire Not Magazine James Dyer but the new issue of Empire Magazine it is brand new and on the cover folks is a character who can't tell the difference between <laughs> waking life and, and dreams. dreams. It's Moon Knight. Hooray! Moon Knight. Very exciting indeed. So we have the world's first look at the brand new Disney Plus MCU show, which introduces Oscar Isaac as Moon Knight and various different personas. Whoa. Or persona, I guess. Would it be? Persona. Are we talking persona? Persona. Uh, anyway, Oscar Isaac, Ethan Hawke, they're all in there. They're all chatting away. So that's good stuff. Uh, happy, happy days. Well done, everybody. And there's other stuff inside this new issue of Empire, which there is on sale right now. Today, as we're recording this, it is New Empire Day. As you're listening to this, it's New Empire Day plus one. There are other amazing features in there. We have Michael Bay, Michael Bay's Ambulance, which looks cracking. Uh, it will be out later on in the year. And I had the great pleasure of sitting down with Michael Bay over Zoom and getting him to talk me through how he does action so well good in it. Mm, he does. Uh, he yeah, does. he does do good action. It does old Michael Bay. So uh, he talks me through how he stages shootouts and 
punch-ups and explosions and all the good stuff, car chases, and there are some cracking anecdotes in there, as you would expect. There's a really good bit about him in the Will Smith book, which I recently finished reading. Basically, you may have it in your feature as well. I haven't finished reading it yet. I probably don't. It's good. Good. Yeah. All right. Good, good, good. Uh, what else do we have in there? We have, oh God, it's me again. I'm so sorry about this. But we have an amazing feature slash interview with Bob Odenkirk. Hey. The great Bob Odenkirk. And I'm so glad I'm not just saying the late, great Bob Odenkirk, because obviously last year he had his heart attack. He had his brush with death that had us all on tenterhooks hoping that he would pull through. And now he has a number of things coming up. He obviously has the final season of Better Call Saul, which has been announced it's going to start in April and will finish, it's going to be split into two parts, and then mm-hmm. it will finish around August, I think. So okay. it's going to start up again in July. That'll be on Netflix over here, AMC in the States. Uh, and he has a memoir. He has a mm-hmm. memoir, and that memoir is called Comedy, 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 Drama. Which is a very... Uh, good, I would say, description of his entire career yeah. and his life. And so, again, I had the pleasure of talking to Bob Odenkirk on Zoom recently uh, as he was about to go to the set of Better Call Saul, actually. I think he was about two weeks away from finishing. They've now just finished filming the uh, the final season of that show. And it was an incredibly candid Q&A. I did not expect him to talk about his heart attack as much as he did. Wow. Uh, but he was he was very, very open to talking about awesome. it. Yeah, so that's a really great feature. We uh, we also speak to Sean Baker and Simon Rex, the director of Red Rocket, the new film from Sean Baker, mm-hmm. obviously. Uh, that's a good one. Uh, Charles Bronson. Love a bit of Charles Bronson. Bit of Charlie B, the star, of course, of the 47th greatest movie ever made, Death Wish 3. That's no, really? not. It's barely. It's the best Death Wish movie. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That that, that seems a more tenable yeah. position. It is better, of course, than Death Wish 4. The crackdown. But uh, did you know that Charles Bronson is the only person who was a member of both the Dirty Dozen and the Magnificent Seven? That is, I'm not sure how to feel about that. Magnificent mm. or dirty? Well, fly <laughs> me. <laughs> <Word. laughs> well, let's move swiftly on, shall we? Uh, yeah, and people may think, hey, Chris, you just read that out of the content section in, in Empire. I wrote that bit, you mothers. Damn so right. there you go. What did you write about um, Luella and Hedda? Uh, haven't got there yet. Okay. Jesus Christ. Uh, Peacemaker. Peacemaker. Lots of people have been asking about Peacemaker. James Gunn's Peacemaker has been renewed this week for season two. I'm very excited to know that because it clearly means that Peacemaker survives uh, season one and will go on to season two because <laughs> they haven't shown season one over here yet in the in the UK. We get a lot of requests every week. Are we going to be doing spoiler specials for Peacemaker? And I would love nothing more than to do spoiler specials for Peacemaker because apparently it is fantastic. However... I don't know when it's screening over here. So yeah. we shall cross our bridge if and when we come to it. But anyway, James Gunn and his cast and John Cena spill all the beans on their latest TV show. He says, read that something he wrote as well. This month's Goddess Among Us is Kate Blanchett. We had Kate Blanchett with the budget. Oh God, I keep just doing my jokes from the contents page. Uh, and then some idiot uh, wrote a feature about Hedda Hopper uh, from A Bug's Life and Luella Parsons. Yeah. I don't know anything. What is that? What are you, what even is that? They are Hollywood gossip columnists. Oh, this is just a chapter yeah. that didn't make your book, isn't it, Helen O'Hara? Actually, I was going to put them in there in more detail, but um, didn't end up having really a space for them. But so this was this was fun. But they are. I mean, I think I first pitched this trailer, uh, this feature, about twenty years, uh, about fifteen years ago. So um, it was quite fun um, when Alex actually asked me to do it. Now, very exciting. There you go to the big old gossip columnists. 
Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons. And there's tons of other stuff in there as well. There's all the reviews you could possibly want. James here finally got to talk to Denny Villeneuve. Dune! <laughs> For Dune, there is. is a four-page Q&A with Dunu Funu. It is one question. Dunu it just begins D. There's about a thousand U's, an N and an E, and then I stop. Yeah, but you went up at the end, so you knew it was a question. That's right. That's right. And he was like, is that a question? Um, yeah. Amazing stuff. So you there like, we go. It's more of a comment. It's more of a comment. It's more <laughs> yes. of a critical appreciation. Hi, hi Danu. I have more more of a comment and a question. My, my, my question is in... 375 parts in the original Fremen I think you find that is the throat singing of the Sardau Car of yeah, I know it is I know it is but I don't know I don't know any Fremen <laughs> <laughs> uh, this month's ranking is Alan Partridge uh, which is all the different iterations of Alan Partridge. Uh, we have a human guide on the canto. We have other stuff in my section review, but if I'm completely honest with you, I can't remember what's in there. Uh, take 20. Don't worry, I'm fully committed to the section. It's all good. Uh, take 20, the new section. Some really amazing stuff in there. We have uh, Benedict Cumberbatch talking about Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, but not for 99 minutes. <laughs> what a slacker. Uh, we have an interview with Kihu Kwan, who is the, of course, data mm-hmm. from the Goonies, short round from the Temple of Doom he is back, back, back as an actor in everything, everywhere, all at once. And um, not going to lie to you folks, I got to speak to Dave Grohl uh, for Woo! Studio 666, the Foo Fighters movie, which will be out next week. So that's in there as well. And he was an absolute delight. There goes my hero. Watch him as he goes. <laughs> oh, dear Lord. What would I do if I were in the same room as Dave Grohl? Maybe one day I'll find out. Anyway, plug in over. Listener question, ahoy. Okay. You don't know what this is yet, do no, you? No, we don't. No, okay. All right. no idea. Rishi Bodalia on Twitter. Rishi said that they were at episode 500 and uh-huh. that they felt that on the day that James was being put onto the pantomime villain bracket. <laughs> and I have the theory it's that it's because he is bald. <laughs> well, I too, says Rishi, yeah. am also a bald individual. <laughs> and feel like Hollywood is very stereotypical when classifying villains at the beginning of every movie, making out that the bald one is always going to be the baddie. My question to you and the team is, who would you class as the ultimate top three bald baddies of all time? I have to quibble with this. Amon is also bald, and no one would accuse him of being the podcast villain. Boyd is bald, and no one would... No, he is. Uh, is, And and I'm sorry, but like the Fast and the Furious franchise, all bald. Uh, Star Trek has had two bald captains. Mm -hmm. I think this is... I think this is a... a, a, Someone who just um, is kind of projecting maybe their own... You know, I think there's some truth to it. Do you think? I do think a little bit. Like it's, I always find like Corey Stoll, a man who is famously bald, and then yeah. when he is the lead in a TV show, they put him in a wig. No, no, he shaved it off at the end of season one of. Oh, the did strain. he? Yeah. Did he? he? Oh, okay. Sorry, sorry. He I didn't shaved do his it. wig. Yeah. yeah he, he quote unquote <laughs> shaved it off. Um, and so he's he's bald for three out of four seasons. Of that. Right. But you know, but like Jean Luc Picard, Yul Brynner was more a hero than a villain. Yep, leader of the Magnificent Seven. There lest we forget, uh, he gave Charles Bronson some orders, didn't he? Yes. Because Charles Bronson was also in the... In the Magnificence. And The Great Escape. But, like, I feel like there are, you know, I feel like Bond, bald guys are not always the bad guy. Uh, Avery Brooks, remember, he was forced to grow hair to be Avery Benjamin Sisko in Deep Space Nine. It wasn't until, like, season three when they allowed him to shave his head again. Yeah, but so this is it. There's a perception that bald means evil, but it clearly doesn't. And, you know, everybody just, like, gets used to it in a minute. Like, I, I just feel like this is... There's a bit of a chip on shoulders, which maybe is not warranted, is what I'm saying. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I agree entirely. And Yul Brynner was someone I was going to suggest. Telly Tefalis as well. Although I'd say, I would say that Telly Tefalis' biggest roles on the big screen, I would say, cast him in a villainous light. Obviously, Blofeld, one of the, mm-hmm. the all-time bald He'd baddies. He'd be one of the all-time bald baddies. Yeah, yeah he was Blofeld in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And also, he was the, uh, the, the uh, I can't remember the character's name, but in the Dirty Dozen, there's a lot of Dirty Dozen chat this week, <laughs> but he was maggot. He was maggot. The the Baden in the Dirty Dozen, a proper unrepentant rapist who um, who um, who undermines the entire operation and gets him discovered in the, in the first place. I'm just thinking of Murder One, where yes. Stanley Tucci, one of the great bald actors, great bald actors, has hair. He does as the bad guy. Yes, but the hero lawyer. Totally bold. Daniel. Yes. Daniel. Daniel. <laughs> Daniel. Daniel. What a guy. Dan, I call him. Hey, Daniel. Lex Luthor, ruler of Australia. Yes. Famously evil, famously bold. Famously but bold. wasn't bold, actually, in that first film. But um, it, was a, it was a wig. So, so it kind of, yeah. you know, it goes both ways. It Even the bold, bold baddies aren't necessarily He was necessarily in disguise. Bold. As a, as a goodie but no, really but he, he was a baddie he- I'm just saying he wasn't but it was a wig so yeah. you know therefore it's yeah. you know it's, it's therefore fine therefore it sticks but, mm. <sighs> okay Mr. Luto yeah <laughs> come here Mr. Luto anyway, I'm just saying I just don't think this stuff as a question <laughs> I'm, yeah I'm going to stick in I'm going to stick in oh my top three bald baddies oh this is tough I mean I'm gonna, okay mm. I'm going to I'm going to throw I'm going to throw Woody Strode as the baddie one of the baddies who meets oh my god I promise you this isn't deliberate. Charles Bronson oh God. at the beginning of Once Upon a Time in the West where the three gunmen are waiting for Charles Bronson to turn up and they go, looks like we're one horse shy and he goes, no, looks like you brought too, too many and then they shit their pants and he kills them. Uh, those three gunmen, it, by the way, this may be apocryphal or not, but the apparent original intention of Sergio Leone uh, was not that they would be Woody Strode who is this wonderful bald head and you know water drips in his head and see it's so good and Jack Elam and Al Mullock it wasn't meant to be those three the three gunmen who were waiting for Charles Bronson harmonica at the beginning of Once Upon a Time in the West were meant to be Clint Eastwood Lee Van Cleef and Eli Wallach so how how do you establish that harmonica is a badass he blows away the three guys from the good, the bad and the ugly Dr. Evil Dr. Evil yeah. See, Doctor Evil, but is Doctor Evil just a, a derivative of Blofeld. Ernst Stavro yes. Blofeld? All right, yes. fine. Ming the Merciless. Ah, uh, I like him, but mm, no. Is there a, uh, Darth Vader? Darth Vader is a big old baldy. Well, he wasn't bald, was he? Hayden had great locks. He just, you know, fell into lava. Lava. Yeah, but they they they, they went. They burned <laughs> off. They, they, they and did then, burn. I mean, you had great locks. That's once, true. And, and then, in fact, I did fall into the well, vase of, go, of Mustafar. But that's actually what happened to me. So. <laughs> But at the end of Return of the Jedi, when he's going, tell your sister you were right. That's that's bold. That is bold. He's a great big old baldy. Chrome Dome. Old Chrome Um, Dome Theatre. Bane. Bane. What a lovely, lovely bald head. What a lovely short back and side. (laughs) Bane, good, good boy. Voldemort, another one. No hair. Yeah. No hair at all. But but, at all. Like no, even on his pubis, like a like a like a snake. <laughs> wow! But I, I Hans don't. Gruber has magnificent hair. Magn- what a shiny mane! You yeah. see, so I just don't see the correlation. Here. Yeah, I just I don't feel like they've entirely made the case. If I'm honest, there yeah. are very many bold heroes as well. But we discussed this in the show already. You talk about Die Hard, Bruce Willis. I know with hair as John McClane, great, mm. relatable, mm. someone you can root for, heroic, without hair, yeah. dickhead. Yeah. True. With hair, three great films. Mm. 
with hair mm. to <laughs> lamentable disasters. Yes, that, that you do make it a compelling case there. Timothy Oliphant, best hair in the business. We've discussed this. Yeah, as, Hitman a disaster. Yeah, Cobb Fanth shaves his head for Hitman. All goes yeah, to but hell. He was True. the you know kind of hero slash anti hero of that film. He wasn't a bad guy, technically, apart from being, you know, the whole assassin thing. No, true, but I'm just saying the whole the whole hair thing. Oh, like he, de- but he like has a whole Samsonian thing going on where his hair mm. is his great strength. Yeah, that's different. I've got a few more. Okay, the Kurgan. <laughs> is the Kurgan bald? I just yes. associate him so much with all that. Fruit. Well, he is later on. I think when you meet him early on, he's not bald, but he shaves his head when he's in disguise. Uh-huh. So, oh, pist- like pistachio disguise. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> shaves his head in disguise. Imhotep. Imhotep. Yeah. All right, I'll allow that. John Doe as well, another one. Don't. Oh no, I don't think we need to talk about him. That's a, yeah, that's a good one. In fact, I think we should. Hey, I think hey, we should hey, talk hey. about him. In the Matrix, who's the one who betrays them? Jerry Pants. Who is he? Bald Cipher. Yeah, but he's mm. not. I don't think he's the bad guy. He's just a guy who knows what he wants. And if that means killing some of his friends to get a nice juicy steak, then so be it. Freddy Krueger's bald. I mean, that's hmm. again, that's an unfortunate accident. Yeah, I think his know. hair got burned off. And, and I feel like his hair is not made a part of his image, what, mm. with the hat and everything. It would look weird, wouldn't it, if Freddie took off his fedora <laughs> and he had this lovely <laughs> curtains. Yeah, yeah. Like the others. <laughs> lovely curtains. <laughs> yeah. That's a sentence that has never been used. <laughs> would, you, um, would you like to see Freddie Krueger's? Anyway. Would you like to see Freddie Krueger's lovely curtains? <laughs> I know I would. That sounds uh, wrong. That, that, that sounds deeply wrong. wrong. Oh, my yeah. word. Um, Who's who's um kind of famously bald these days? So Gollum. Dr. Folter. Gollum Gollum's famously bald. <laughs> Pinhead. Actually, Gollum Gollum does have a bit of a combo going have, on. Yeah, there. he does. He, he does. He's got a whisk of it. He's gone yeah. full Bobby Charlton. Yeah, and he's yeah. he's, he's yeah. you know, I, I, believe me, I know. I feel his pain. So famously bald these days, it is the likes of Mark John Strong. Folter. Mark Strong. And Corey Corey Stoll and still Patrick Stewart, who's been rocking the bald look for forty years now. Yeah. And and the entire cast of Fast and Furious. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Pretty much. Pretty much. Pretty much that. Uh, who's bald in the MCU? So you talked about, you know, we'll just very quickly talk about the MCU, obviously. The, <laughs> ancient, the <laughs> ancient one. Like well, Vision is kind of bald. Who is? Vision. Vision. Mm. I mean, it's an interesting philosophical question. Like, he's sometimes yes. bald, but when he appears in human form, he ain't The bald. hair of Theseus is bald. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> the hair of Theseus. <laughs> the hair of Theseus. So Theseus cuts his hair and then wears his hair as a wig. And then is it still part <laughs> of Theseus or is it a separate thing? Hair. Yeah, it's hard to say. Like, what would you like? Would you like Captain America if he had a beard? Yeah, but no hair. Oh, that's a good question. Would he be more attractive than Cary Grant if you shaved his head? It's Cary, not Grant, Cary Grant. Cary Grant. Cary Grant. Cary Grant. That's a whole other conversation. That's a very complicated conversation. Cary Grant. Conversation what, 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 what? Gene Kelly. Talk about. Sorry. Uh, Gene Kelly, though. Um, I see Cary Grant. I'm I'm not willing to yield on. I think that's Cary yeah, Grant that's, is yes. just really. Oh, he's. Uh, he's no cap. No, he's someone else. He's Cary Grant. Even he wants to be Cary Grant. Like that's a whole different conversation. Um, <laughs> bald with. I think. I feel like he's had that at some point, hasn't he? Like in the Who? losers or something, he's had he's definitely had shape like close shaved head. Well, he's he close like Fantastic two. Four is probably the closest I would say he's come to yeah. that, hasn't he? Because he, he's that's like a grade three, grade four. He's got. And he's had us. very bad hair at times. Like he had that awful um, uh, blonde tips thing. That was the losers. That was the losers. Yeah. yeah, I interviewed him on set of the losers in Puerto Rico. Oh, uh, we were in his trailer, and he had weights on the floor. And he was very amenable and charming. It's very nice. In mm. in his trailer on um, Civil War, he had a big giant um, glass jar full of those red licorice things. Oh, did he? Well, on his trailer... <laughs> in... <laughs> did you get to taste Cap's red licorice? I did not. 
<laughs> did you ask if you could touch his red licorice? I definitely did not. That would have been inappropriate. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we may have gotten somewhat off track. Oh, dear Lord. <laughs> anyway, that's it for Baldies, isn't it? RDJ. Count Orloff. Count. What? Who? Olaf. Max Shrek. Oh, Max Shrek. Okay, yes. Oh, okay. Uh, I mean, that's a good one. All right. That's a good one. All right. Yeah. So, Nosferatu. Yeah, but on the other hand, have there been more Nosferatus or more Draculas? There have been more Draculas or Draculier. Draculier. Sorry, Chris, I didn't right. mean to leave you Get out. It right. Um, and and they all have hair. So again, like I just don't feel like the thesis is entirely the being shown here. <laughs> the ship of thesis. The ship of thesis. I think it holds. I think it holds. I think we can all right. Okay, I'm going. My top three. My top three baddies. Bald baddies. Okay. Are Woody Strode. Um, even though because he, he makes such a memorable impact before he gets blown away, spoiler alert. Blofeld. That's fair. But probably the Donald Pleasance Blofeld. Okay. And Lex Luthor. Which Gene one? Hackman. Hmm. Gene Hackman, vintage Lex Luthor, because we know he's bald under there. I mean, he's wearing a. Anyway, okay, sure, fine, whatever. He's a big baldy. Too late, Luthor. Too late. Hell's bells. Um, uh, okay, I'll also go with Blofeld um, and then oh. Dr. Evil oh. and then John Doe because that freaked me out. Yeah. I don't mm-hmm. know if I have a ranking of them. Oh, I, that went very high, didn't it? <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I have a ranking I don't know what's of happening them. there. Uh, I don't know Gene if I have... Williger's mister, let me come up with the top three bald baddies. Oh, I can do it, mister. <laughs> I don't know if I have a ranking of... Bald villains. I've right. listed all of them. I don't know if I could put them in a in a like a like a top. Well, she three. just stole one of mine. So go go for it. Yeah. yeah. Um, Star Wars. It's got to be a Star Wars baddie who's the Emperor's bald. You love the, you though? love the Emperor. Is he though? He takes his head off. I don't think he's bald. He takes his he takes his hood off and he's like no he doesn't though does he? No, but but that's that's back when he so he had he had that sort of okayish hair before the two week incidents. But I don't know. He might have a little bit of fuzz there. You don't know. He keeps his hood up a lot. Do you consider Lobot to be a goodie or a baddie? <laughs> Lobot is, of course, the true hero of the Empire Strikes Back. Uh, <laughs> says 24-7 Lobot cosplayer James Dyer. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. This was before he sort of sort of moved on to be in the lives of others. How about, but, yeah, um, I was going to say, how about your spiritual you know, role model, him from the lives of yeah, others? Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I think uh, I would have to say... Jean-Luc Picard. That's not no, 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 no. I am thinking, of course, the Praetor Shinzon clone oh. of Jean-Luc Picard oh in Star Trek Ten Nemesis, played, as you will know, by Tom Hardy. Well, I mean, I, we don't even, like, he doesn't even get called Jean-Luc Picard. Like, that is incorrect. That is not his chosen name. He is name. a genetic clone, Helen. He I is mean, identical. He well I, am I mean, ast- is he with the nose? I'm astonished you haven't said Baron Harkonnen. Or that's, indeed, Dave Bautista. That's a good point. There's some good bald villains. Oh, the Harkonnens have the good bald villains. But then I, only, I think the only reason that Baron Vladimir Harkonnen and Glossu Raban <laughs> have no hair is because Fade Rautha has all the hair in the Harkonnen family. All right. So, yeah. Okay. Well, listen, uh, that is the only question we're going to take this week because we talked about that for far too Way long. Too long. <laughs> uh, but you, you have sent in some questions this week because I did a panicked shout out. And so we'll get to some of those next week or the week after or the week after that. But thank you so much to Rishi Bodalia on Twitter for that question. We have ranked definitively our ultimate top three bald baddies of all time. But spare a thought for the goodies as well. Mm. Jason Statham would not have a career exactly. if it weren't 
for bald goodies. And I genuinely think like there are there are you know men with great hair. There are you, among us. Yeah, of course. There are among us the sort of the Oscar Isaacs and the Ben Wishels and the Adam Drivers and the people like that. But there are not that many. And a lot of men get very very self conscious about losing their hair. And generally you, speaking, you know, it's not that great to begin with so it's fine no but no no see not everyone uh, i'm about to pay james a compliment here but james james has a good head that's a good head what is it what is the good cranial architecture monument to cranial (laughs) architecture is what terry gilliam said of bruce willis's bald head because terry gilliam kind of had to persuade bruce willis to shave his head for 12 Monkeys, which mm. was strange because that was post-Pulp Fiction, if I remember right. I mean, I can understand if you had to persuade him to have his head shaved by 12 Monkeys. Well, that would totally be understandable. <laughs> that would, yeah, that would give you pause, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, lots of pause. <laughs> 24 <laughs> of them, by my count. At yeah. least, yeah, at least. Yeah. No, I, I, I know what you're saying, but I'm just saying it's not... I have a misshapen... I'd be like fucking Sloth from the Goonies. So... <laughs> That's that. If this and this is going. Chris love junk. Hey, you guys. That's That'll a different. Be, that's a different. That's yeah, a different yeah. brand. Oh, okay. Oh God, yeah. That's right. That's that's true. Den of Geek. <laughs> anyway, yeah. And we'll we'll see we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll see where the chips fall where they may. Maybe a a benevolent benefactor will come to my rescue and slide into my DMs with a cheeky hair transplant. <laughs> it could happen. Actually, I say Backstreet. Backstreet hair transplant earlier on. That that is where they take the hair. They take the hair from the anus and oh, they no. transplant it to the hair. That's not true. It's true. It's, it's absolutely true. No, who told it's you that? Absolutely true. This is not true. I, I refuse heard, to believe. No, 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 no. He's wrong. They take it from the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that I understand. That I understand. Of your Backstreet hair. My understanding That's is fun. at least the the guy. <laughs> My understanding is that they take some of the hair from the anus. They take some of it from other places. <laughs> they do not take hair from the anus and put it on your it's, head. That's where they take this it from. Is not Why true. Is this There's no way you have like anus hairs <laughs> on your you sh- head after you have an expensive hair transplant. You should never stand downwind of somebody who's had a hair transplant. No. This is just not true. Anyway. That is it for this week's listener question. If you want to have your question read out in the Emperor Podcast, well, just wait a couple of weeks because I think I have enough now. The title's over for the next couple of weeks. Uh, but you can reply to any of my panicked shout-outs every now and again. I'm at Chris Hewitt on Twitter. You can slide into my DMs, as Rishi Badalia did, in fairness. Uh, thank you for the kind words about episode 500 as well, Rishi. And uh, Or you can just reply to any of my tweets with a question. And if it's good enough, I may well pop it in the bank. Time now for our first guest this week. This hasn't happened yet, but I hope it will happen and hope it will be good. Helen? Yeah. Yeah, yeah me All too. Right. Yeah, 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 good. Uh, it is with the wonderful British actress Joanna Scanlon, who of course is best known for her work in the likes of The Thick of It and The Larkins and No Offence. But she has been BAFTA nominated just the other week for her incredible performance in After Love. And so with the BAFTAs coming up, we thought it would be a wonderful time to speak to her about that and about a great many things. And when I say we, I mean Helen. Helen's yeah. going to speak to Joanna Scanlon. Hasn't happened yet. And I, I will say. have had a wonderful time, a wonderful sure. time will be a, will have been had by all. <laughs> so here we go. Helen talking to Joanna Scanlon about After Love, BAFTA and all that jazz. Do please enjoy. C- congratulations on the film. Now I have to say I saw it about four months ago. So apologies now if I've forgotten the detail, but the sense of the film has absolutely stuck with me. It's just, it's so powerful. It's so emotional. I just, I was swept away by it. I know I'm, you're supposed to be interviewing me, and uh, but what is that sense then? What is that emotional? I mean, it's quite interesting when someone hasn't seen 
has seen something a long time ago because then you do get what's left you know like as if you had a sieve and mm. you see what's what's sort of hanging there and I mean is that uh, to turn the tables but is that is that a feeling of um is it an emotion you're left with an emotional feeling from it because it takes you on an emotional journey yeah yeah absolutely that I, th- I think it's that that sense of just such profound loss and then such for that to be followed by you know so to set it up for anyone who hasn't seen the film um you know she loses her husband and then finds out that he's been keeping an entirely secret life from her for all these years and and it's that kind of displacement and and you know I, obviously you end up thinking about it yourself when times you've been lied to or misled or betrayed and and that shift in your psyche is really powerful let alone the the shift of grief and the shift of loss so it's just it's a lot yeah. it's a lot to deal with it's huge huge issues yeah, yeah they are big and um I think you, if you looked at that sort of on paper, you might think it was a sort of bit of a plot device or something, you know, that like, oh, right, we're going to go into a, another world and, um, uh, and and look at, you know, betrayal in, in you know, that could be a storyline in a soap, couldn't it? Yeah. It's, it's not it's not that the storyline itself is the, the hook. It's more what actually happens yeah. um, because it's the way that plays out is unusual, I think. And the people who are playing it out are also unusual. So the character I play, Mary, is a um, a convert to Islam maybe 30 years ago. She's when she fell in love and married um, her husband. Um, he, as you just said, dies at, at the top of the film. And, and then she has to go on this journey of discovery. Um, and then we also meet a French woman who sort of epitomizes some of those qualities of Frenchness in or at least in my in my way of seeing her and then um you've got two very unusual locations because mm-hmm. you're look you're starting in Dover and you're looking over to Calais at the beginning and then then it then we go to Calais and we look back over to Dover mm-hmm. um and of course that English channel between is so redolent of um metaphor um and also it represents something so huge to what it means to be British and what it means to be British is then really questioned in this film, I think. Yes, this is it. It's getting into so many different kind of thorny issues without simplifying them, without without kind of flattening them. So, I mean, was that all there on the page? Because this is a first time director, Alim Khan, you know, brings you this script. You're a writer yourself. I imagine you have, you know, opinions on writing when you see it. So so what what was that first encounter with this story like? Well, it was a very unusual read because I did think, um, you know, well, you, you read whenever you get. Uh, I mean, I, I it was sent to me in order that I would audition for it. So I was looking at it from the point of view of like, Oh, what's you know? What's the role, and and would I be able to play it? Is it right for me? Should I, should I get you know put myself put my hat into the ring? And um, so I think I imagine because most things that I get sent are are quite uh, you know where I'd be playing as a character a, a character actress playing a role that would be you know fairly I think I thought maybe kitchen sinky or something mm-hmm. like that sort of social realism or along those lines. And then as I started to turn the pages, there was just nothing in there that I could recognise from another script. Mm. Um, and, of course, that's where the real joy of um, 
for an actor and also you know within the whole culture it's when you see something fresh that comes from and up to a point i mean alim is first time direction i think there's an element of beginner's mind in this in that i don't think he locked himself down to what was already received wisdom yeah. or even what is purports to be like modern thinking but is also received wisdom you know he really told something very very fresh um out of his own responses to life um and his own set of what i was thought of as a set of coordinates this is an a set of coordinates i've never seen in in a dynamic relationship um before so that was what the read was like um when i first saw it and i thought my goodness this is quite something and um i had look i'd always been interested actually in is islamic converts um um uh, um particularly women um and i remember there was actually something uh with grace that grace and perry did ages ago now a, a documentary where he talked to a young islamic convert white woman who had converted to islam in actually same similar part of the world i think she was probably essex but you know similarish part of the world and that was her story stayed with me and fascinated me and in fact i'd written a character for uh an islamic convert in getting on very brief oh, right. but but that was something that i thought about then a long long time ago so that appealed to me hugely to uh enter that world of um islam and faith and what it would mean to to throw away i guess quite a lot of the values of um that i would normally carry around with me mm. if you like to change those values and see who you are when you change those values yeah yeah that was uh, that i thought was a fascinating part of the film because you know she's she's done this for love she's done this to to create this this partnership this family with her with her husband and then you know what she discovers i thought was was a bit of a, a kind of crisis of identity as much as anything else because she finds out he also could love a woman who had done none of that stuff and who had not taken those steps at all so it's it, you know and and it it really kind of calls into question how true her faith is and how much it is really a part of her and not just a part of her relationship i suppose yeah i mean that's a really big um question isn't it you know that she she did marry she converted for marriage and then that marriage has proved to be false in the sense that islam to him had meant something different to to that which she had grown into um and her, the practice you know he we see i mean i don't think i'm giving too much away to say but we do see at one moment him drinking a bottle of beer um and you think oh my goodness she has you know she's forgone what would have been part of her social culture in order to give up alcohol and so on and then but he didn't and I, but I think my mom was a convert actually not for marriage but she converted to catholicism from church of england when she was in her late teens and so I sort of have been around that idea a lot in my life mm. um and what it means to take on something adopt it and how you where you put the real feeling of faith the real belief inside the daily practice and I think for a lot a lot of um converts or certainly it's true of you know i think it's true of my mother i hope she's not listening is that she is much much more let's call it regulated about all those practices 
than my father, who mm. is born a Catholic and, you know, grown up a Catholic. Yeah. No zealot like a convert kind of a line. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she really knows all that. She knows her onions really in much more detail than. And I, and I even talked a bit about that when we were rehearsing and stuff that, you know, for him, the Namaz prayer, for example, which we, we had to focus on because it's in the film, you know, he's, it's quite throwaway for him. It's sort of, I wouldn't call it muttered, but there's an element of, it's respectful, but it's, it's not, it's just part of what you do alongside all the other things you do in your day. Whereas for me to get that quality, to act that quality of throwaway, that felt like, oh my goodness, how am I going to find that? Because I've got to go through the stage of being very reverential and formal in order to get beyond that. And that, and that, that in itself is actually quite challenging. Yeah. So that was really interesting, really interesting. And uh, Aline gave you basically a huge bundle, I believe, of, of material to work with and research and so on. And then you got to talk to, to his mum as well. So does that all, it all feeds in basically and kind of gets processed through. Is that how it works for you? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was systematic in some ways. I think you do, my process has always been to be fairly systematic and then forget it, um, you know, to, to, to do everything and then forget it. And what actually happens is that the surprise, you know, you, you, you read the books. So in this case, we were looking at Islam, but also on, and also grief, you know, um, what grief does to people, the, the relationship between, you know, sadness and madness and all of those sorts of elements that anybody who's been through profound grief will recognize. So we did, quite a lot of research about that and and also the, the backstories and the you know the actual characters and Dover and Calais and France you know lots and lots of those sorts of things plus lots of film references and so on but I think at the end of the day the things that really worked were for example back to that namaz prayer um Solomon um Talit who plays Solomon his mum was with us for rehearsal. Uh, actually, it wasn't even rehearsal. It was we were doing. It was the day we shot the drones um, right. across. You know that very wonderful shot um, of the big drones and uh, the big drone shot on the cliffs of Dover, uh, the White Cliffs of Dover. Uh, we I, and I was struggling with learning the prayer, and I was struggling with uh, this throwaway quality and all of that. And then. Um, she, I asked her, she's Syrian, um, they live in Paris, and I asked her, would, could, could I just record her on my phone um, reciting the prayer, which she did, and it was, that was the moment when it crystallised, because it's when all the facts and figures cease to mean anything, and what becomes almost like something you could actually capture in yourself and then work from as an actor happened and that was this quality of of pure spiritual actuality and then I saw what actual faith I, I grabbed something that I could then use as the pure inner life for Mary's faith yeah. um, and that was just an accident so I guess you're just searching all the time for anything that will be helpful um, and hope that you've done enough before the day comes that it will you know fall into place and make some sense in the in the scene. Mm. I, this, I mean, I was, I was reading a bunch of interviews with you before doing this, obviously. And, I, you know, I, I remember you talking about fixing on acting pretty early on in your life and, and wanting to be an actor and realising that and then kind of getting, 
you know, not instantly getting there, having responsibilities, having, you know, financial needs, obviously, like we all do, and and sort of putting it off and putting it off and sort of doing other things for a while. You know, is it that that you're really in, in search of when you when you got back to it and when you kind of threw yourself back into it? Was it finding those moments and finding that place where it all kind of clicks? No, I think, no, it wasn't quite that because I wanted to be an actor from the age of four. I can, you know, it was, that's my first performance and that's when I thought, right, this is what I want to do forever. Um, and then what happened in my early 20s after I left university, still with that, you know, quite straightforward intention, is that an element of reality bites that I just didn't, I didn't have, I couldn't, I knocked on a lot of doors and none of them opened. So I felt like the gatekeepers had closed closed it and thrown away the key. And so I felt forced really into another life. And, and I worked as a, a drama teacher um, at Leicester Polytechnic on a BA course, which was actually an amazing course and, and something that I used to almost study at myself with all the other teachers. I go to their classes and really learn a lot. But then when I got to 30, um, it just, I was so unhappy. I was just, I still, I felt like, as my friend said, and Nick Park invented, I just was living in the wrong trousers. Mm. And it was, I had, I was never happy when I wasn't doing, when I wasn't acting. And then when I started, so I sort of managed to get rid of my mortgage and get rid of all the things, the trappings of a, you know, steady job, a pension, all of those, that stuff, got rid of it all in, in and took that step into the dark and then just was happy from that moment. I mean, it's a really simple thing, but even when it was going to an audition, I used to love going to auditions. Those in the days before um, we did it all on, on uh, self tapes, but I would love going because it was a day in which I acted, in which I just pretended in that scene and played the scene with the casting director and I never found those, perhaps it was because the joy of it was there for me. I never found it frightening or even really competitive or because I thought, well, if I get another audition tomorrow, then I can go and play again in the, in the sandpit, you know, that it, it was very much, uh, a, it's a, it meets something that's really quite essential in mm. me. Um, and, and therefore I would do it without any of the trappings, you know, the trappings are, really not the point the point is actually the doing of it and the playing with other with other performers but also very much in film and with the crew and working really in in a lot of close proximity to other skills and crafts that thrills me that's amazing that's a very very healthy attitude genuinely so healthy but um so what does it mean then to to get a BAFTA nomination I mean you know obviously it's a it's a big boost to a film which I think everybody should see because I just think it's extraordinary but but what does it mean to you personally it's really hard to actually bring it you know land that as a as a an actuality I, I I'm not a bit of me still is going what you know I, <laughs> I don't quite compute. Um, it's a very strange feeling that it, it's because when I think of a BAFTA nomination and I'm thinking of the films that I have loved in the past and the performances that I have loved and everything that BAFTA means for the industry and everything that, you know, it means for, for individual films, that doesn't bear any relation to my, my little old life. You know, it, it's really, <laughs> really, it's really a stretch. To think that that is the case, um, but if I was to be more objective about it, I mean, of course, it's wonderful because you know 
the big secret is that we only ever really, I think, want these things, you know, because it gives us more opportunities to make more films, yeah. to be back in, you know, be back on the floor. Um, and I, I've been, I was lucky enough to be taught by um, Bernadine Evaristo when I was doing a writing course. Um, she's an amazing person. That was before she won the Booker. Mm. And I've taken a lot. I loved the way she won the Booker because she just went into that and just embraced the value of it. So what I don't want to be falsely modest and I don't want to pretend it doesn't mean something because it does. But I also want it to mean something that is that one can share with everybody um, and that the world is, is, is going to be a better place for that nomination in my case, you know, that I, I mean, I don't want it just to be for me. What what would be the point? I mean, I, people talk about them. I have to use them as, you know, they put them in the loos or they put their, you know, as doors, door stops. That's not the point. The point isn't the thing. It's the point is what it can do in terms of sharing the excellence and sharing messages that are really, really valuable and fun and important for our world and, and perhaps, uh, you know, help us debate our, our own culture and our own selves. Absolutely. And, and that, this film does all of those things. So, so fantastic, fantastic news. Well, just, just to finish up, you know, what, what are you working on at the moment? What have you got coming up next that people should be aware of? Um, well, I'm currently in Wales, um, where I'm filming in in both English and Welsh. Ooh. So, um, yes, we're, I'm, I'm doing a series called Agola, which is in English, the light in the, the light in the hall, and it's a six part drama, um, another crime situation. Uh, I say not not that not that after love is a crime situation, but no. I have I have been in I've had my fair share of crime work, um, and it's a really exciting to be working at well I come from Wales I I am Welsh I I enjoy being back home I really do and but the bit that I've never really done is expand the language so that is the big thrill for me um it's really really amazing and how is your Welsh are you you're happy in Welsh now it's improving it's improving (laughs) Um, I can only say it's getting better I can't say I'm really there yet but um I'm going to continue the journey after this so that I can learn a few things other than just, you know, there's a lot of phrases that my character has because of the situation she's in. Her daughter has been murdered and, um, uh, and I'd like to expand my vocabulary beyond them. Those hopefully will not be useful regularly in, in daily life. So that seems, <laughs> that seems pretty exactly. sad. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to see it. And, uh, and yeah, good luck at the BAFTAs. Thank you very much. Well, it's a, it's going to be an absolute thrill to be there and to be able to gawp at other people, frankly. <laughs> okay, so that was Joanna Scanlon. Now it is time to delve deep into this week's movie news. And there's a lot of stuff to talk about. And there were a lot of trailers to talk about because this weekend was the Super Bowl, the Superb Owl. Uh, I was invited to my neighbour Sean's Superb Owl party. It went very, very badly. And um, it was the Super Bowl. At the weekend, the LA Rams, of course, beat the Cincinnati Cincinnati Bengals. Bengals. Cincinnati Bengals. It was the LA Rams, of course, who robbed me of a thousand pounds. I had 10 pounds on the San Francisco 49ers reaching the Super Bowl against the Cincinnati Bengals. 10 pounds at 100 to 1. 
so close. So so close. So close. Yeah. So close. I know. So I was rooting for the Bengals and. Uh, See how that went. Yeah, didn't didn't go right. Didn't go well. But anyway, there were lots of trailers. There were lots of TV adverts mm-hmm. as well, which I, I watched live because my wife has the Game Pass. So we were able to see all the American adverts. And that's how I knew there was a new Doctor Strange trailer because I saw the Doctor Strange Super Bowl TV spot first with all its new footage. And then it said, watch the new trailer and then talk about it for two hours. That was the instruction on screen. So that's what we did. So we're not going to talk about the Doctor Strange trailer. No, no. Although Damn it. amazing give stuff. Give us one word, James. Great. Okay. Give us another word. Shumagorath. I'm sorry, what? Shumagorath. Right. Who is in the trailer. Oh, yes. Okay. Which you, I'm sure you discussed. I we can't believe actually. you spent we two did. hours talking about it and didn't mention Shuma fucking Gorath. We did. That's Gargantos. You're Gargantos. That's mm. hurtful. <laughs> <laughs> or a compliment, Helen, depending on what I meant. Mm. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. So anyway, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Uh, great. Gargantos, the whole thing. Mm. Uh, there were other trailers out as well. One was Jurassic World Dominion, and we would have probably done a trailer breakdown for that, only it dropped on Friday afternoon when I was editing the podcast. I mm. just didn't have time to assemble the troops. I know Ben Travis in particular is still, as much as I was vibrating at the speed of light after watching the Multiverse of Madness trailer, uh, with, of course, my beloved, possessed, good boy Sam Raimi coming back to mm. show all you fools how to make a movie. Ben was similarly yeah. enraptured by the Dominion trailer. Yeah, there were there were some really cool things in it. There were there were some things where I felt like they started with a cool image and then worked backwards hmm. for sure. You know, nothing the, wrong with that. No, not necessarily. No, but you know, sort of the the cowboys riding alongside dinosaurs on a snowy plane. Um, really, really cool. No idea what the fuck it's there for, but sure. Cool. It's the power of the dog too. That's <laughs> it kind of looked that way, didn't that's, it? That's Bronco Henry. He's, oh, he's, at last. He's Brontosaurus last. Henry. <laughs> yeah. Bronto Henry, that's what that is. <laughs> uh, but look, there there is one scene that, that absolutely got me and everyone else, I think, which is seeing the original trio reunited, uh, Laura Dern, Sam Neill yes. and Jeff Goldblum all looking foxy as hell and just I mean, looking great How together. has that happened? Oh, how yes. has that happened? So they legitimately look better now. They have better hair. Sam Neill has better hair he now does. than he did in 1993. No, he, he's a guy where it would be a real shame to if he went bald because he has just great hair. He has great hair. Great, great I mean, not hair. Timothy Oliphant great, but who does? I mean, it's not far off. Yeah, you know. It's not far off. Yeah. Anyway, but you know, yeah, that that stuff all looked tremendous to the point, and I don't want to be rude about the new cast because I even I certainly enjoyed Jurassic World, and I liked a lot about Fallen Kingdom. Who can forget Hoodzamot uh, and Thingamy? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like can, can they not just them? kill them, them in the first them? five minutes and then just have the original three? Hmm. Can either of you name them? <sighs> yes, yes, I can. <laughs> Claire Deering. Claire Deering. Claire Deering. And handsome McJawbone. The problem is, in my review of Jurassic World, I called him Hunk McStubble, and that's (laughs) all I can think of now. Andy Dwyer? No, not Andy Dwyer. Uh, Burt Macklin. Burt Macklin, Macklin, FBI. That's not his name. That's his name. That's his name. No. Uh, What? what, No. Do you know his name? Dude, no, I know, I know his name. Owen! Owen Grady! Fuck you! <laughs> <laughs> Who can forget? Who can forget after some considerable time? <laughs> and the little girl. The little girl is the back. Girl. And, oh, yes. and she also little girl. has a name. Yes. Yeah. yeah, little, little girl. girl. The clone, the clone girl. Yes. And there are... Get him dead. Yeah, there are rumours that uh, Jeff Goldblum's uh, philosopher after kicking daughter from The Lost World mm. is going to be in this as well. 
So yeah, it's exciting. It exciting. You know, yeah. lots of dinosaurs chasing after people and the original cast and Owen Grady and Claire Deering <laughs> and it's so exciting. So exciting. Fantastic. Colin Trevorrow's back as director. Bish bash bosh. It's gonna be the conclusion of the sexology and sexy it's the sexy trilogy <laughs> it's be, that's what it is uh, very excited about that any other trailers although really? there was a small one for the Lord of the Rings the Rings ah. of Power seriously Helen what mm. like as a as a ring head is, mm. that, is that a thing that we can say to I someone I think so sure why not uh, what, like how did you feel like you must have had a little bit of nerves knowing this was coming. I, I still have nerves, uh, absolutely. But I, I also have hope, you know. I feel like, so Second Age gives them a very sparse canvas to work with. Mm. We know that there's Numenor in there. They're fudging timelines quite a bit. I think they're, they're, they're I think from the looks of what we're seeing, we're going to see some stuff from what should be early in the Second Age and also very late in the Second Age. If, you know, even though they're quite long lived, everybody here, you know, lives at least hundreds of years, if not thousands in the case of the elves. But if that is Elendil and Isildur... Do elves die? Aren't they endless? Uh, I think they're immortal, aren't they? Different kinds of elves, aren't there? Sylvan elves, I think, have slightly uh, shorter lifespans than the high elves. I don't know. I must admit, while I read nothing but fantasy, I'm not a Tolkien file. Okay, well, Um, but this is... And this is interesting. It doesn't give me a massive Silmarillion. It's actually not based on the Silmarillion. It's based on stuff. Even they couldn't get through it. (laughs) Jesus Christ. But this is one of the interesting things I read, that they didn't buy... Well, that is interesting. ...the rights to the Silmarillion, the Unfinished Tales, or any of the rest. They bought... (laughs) Hang on, what did their hoverbill dollars get them. They bought the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbits and all of those Did appendices. someone mention they've already been done? They've got the appendices. These, this oh, is, well, well shit, as long as they've got the appendices. This, this is the fascinating thing. This is this shit is all coming from basically asides, songs and the appendices. It's like if someone made a Discworld series based entirely on the footnotes. <laughs> I mean, that would oh, God, be, that would be amazing. Cool. It would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. It would be absolutely brilliant. Um, I'm just saying Tom Bombadil will get the fuck out. It's not impossible. <laughs> it's unlikely in the extreme, but it's not impossible. But I think um, there, there's some speculation that the the scene with Galadriel climbing the ice wall is actually the elves kind of crossing over a land bridge in the far north, which would happen at the beginning of the Second Age, which seems unlikely. But um, So I think it's probably just assaulting a castle or something. Um, there's We do see Numenor, which is the kind of Atlantis of Middle-earth. Which you can see gonna... why we didn't do a trailer breakdown for this. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm, I have to say a lot of this, I, you know, I, I have read all of the appendices and all of the songs and everything, but if, if at the moment the, the most detailed breakdown I've seen is in Vanity Fair because they've actually kind of gone and covered it already. And seen um, the series, it seems, as well. Yeah, so. seen a few episodes. Yeah. Not saying I'm wildly jealous, yeah. but I am wildly jealous. Um, and, and yeah, so we're going to see some um, Casa Doom at its height. You know, we're going to see some cool shit, man. Um, well, we see the minds of Moria. That's Casa Doom, obviously. Don't, okay. yeah, I mean, come on, Good. come on, Chris. Yes. Don't embarrass us all. Come on, sorry. Um, but yeah, there's a, it's some interesting stuff. There's going to be some like intergenerational dwarf strife, I think, between Durin three and Durin four. I mean, come on, people. <laughs> I just, I, I, I can, can we? I just sit with this moment, so I just feel like I am at least not the least cool person on the podcast for maybe the first time in history. Um, Look, dude, we did the Wheel of Time podcast together a couple of weeks ago. You I mean, know that's, that's not the, the that first time. That is fair. I say yep to okay. the trailer mm. for the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. Um, as you know, I'm not I'm not a huge expert on those movies. Oh, wow. But I'm certainly looking forward to listening to you guys talk about the show. <laughs> so how many times have you what, read the appendices? 
Or did you have your appendix out? Hey. <laughs> wow. I would have read them, I guess, when I read The Lord of the Rings. Some of them were quite good. Some of them were really heavy going. I remember reading The Unfinished Tales. I couldn't make it through The Silmarillion. First half of The Silmarillion is, is hard and then it eases up a lot. There are two types of people in this world, Helen. <laughs> those who have not read The Silmarillion and those who have tried to and <laughs> flung the fucker across the room. I must confess something. I never made it through The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> what? What? So, so like I admittedly I love uh, fantasy and uh, I have read many many fantasy books but fuck me they're hard work dude you read some of the freaking Malazan books I, that is true I've read a number of Malazan books of the Fallen but even <sighs> that I just I mean it's just breakfast and then a song and then another breakfast and then another song and it's just like make it stop oh, but the writing is so good is it though like, it is, it's, it's amazing it is, it's got minus characterization in it he's all about the law no like, it's, it's Minas Tirith <laughs> I, I don't geek, even geek, quick, I can't geek even reference. look at yeah, him yeah, 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 I can't even look at him right now I know, now. I know it's I mean? blasphemy I know it's blasphemy but it's like me also saying I don't listen to the Beatles there's a theme here there is a theme here I don't like <gasps> you forerunners <laughs> yeah, look, we, we've got to shun this guy hey, for look, at least a week apparently I'm the pantomime villain so I feel I should just own this shit <laughs> yeah uh, God, thank God that I will not be stuck in a room with you guys for the next couple of days so that would be horrendous uh, listen <laughs> James, James is not lying about the Beatles thing. Um, after yesterday, we saw yesterday together. He came out. Well, you know, I didn't like the Beatles, but having now listened to the songs in that movie, I was like, quite good. Yeah. Once, once you've seen the Beatles reinterpreted through the the prism of Himesh Patel, that's the only way you can actually understand how <laughs> good the true. Beatles are. It's true. I'm I'm not having it from Paul McCartney, but you know oh, what? Boy. When Himesh Patel sings it, I'm there. Yeah, I can really feel the passion. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Of of I saw her standing there. <laughs> Oh my God! Why am I friends yes, with you? This, this is, is a question. We don't we don't treat James like a pantomime villain because he's he bald. We treat him like a pantomime villain because he says these things <laughs> that require us to take uh, action. Yes, to but today today James is Baron Hardout, so we should we should very much Holy. move on with the show. Hard out, I oh, said. Sorry, hard yes. hard yeah. out. Yeah. Uh, so we should move on with the the movie news. And I say yep to the trailer. I'm going to continue with the segue I tried to set up five minutes. Ago, <laughs> I say yep to the trailer for the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power, and I but... say yep to Nope uh, as well. Oh yeah, think, yeah. So maybe like, is it aliens? Is it? Is no, it's Jordan Peele. Okay, I know it's. I know it's Jordan Peele making the film. <laughs> All right, okay. I know it's human beings starring in the film, yes. and playing human characters. I believe. Whoa. My question to you is: Is the sort of phenomenon that's happening in the phenomenon? Do do be do boo. Is that an alien phenomenon? No, Helen, I think the villain is the horse. Bad the horse. horse. The thoroughbred of fear. The thoroughbred of sin. Sin. Um, is it thoroughbred of sin or thoroughbred sure. of fear? I can't oh, remember. Sin. What is happening? From Dr. Horrible's yeah. sing-along blog. Bad horse. Oh, okay. Bad, Bad horse. horse. Oh, Joss Whedon. <laughs> Whatever happened to him? Anyway. <laughs> Jordan Peele. Yes. So, nope. So we should say what this is. So it's a trailer for Nope, which is the third film from Jordan Peele. And we knew nothing about it apart from that that poster that appeared last year mm -hmm. uh, which had a cloud with some flags brightly coloured flags hanging over it and now there's a trailer that came out this week so we got a, a glimpse at Daniel Kaluuya we got a glimpse at uh, Kiki Palmer we got a glimpse at Stephen Young there's and there's lots of images that you know it's very very um, very well it's a teaser trailer yeah I have yeah. no idea what this movie's about no. lots of people are suggesting it might be aliens and that nope might stand for not of planet earth ooh 
Well done me for absolutely not putting that together. Oh, mm. yeah, neither did I. Mm. That's that's interesting. Yeah. But it looked great. It yeah, looked great. Really and nice. I almost kind of wish I hadn't seen it. I don't think it's giving away too much. I hope not. I, I don't really not. give away anything apart from that one of them has a horse. A bad horse. Yeah. A bad horse. Yeah. The thoroughbred of something. It also seems to eliminate any suggestions that this is a direct sequel to Get Out. In that Daniel Kluya seems to be playing a completely no, different No, so the sequel to Get Out is Get yeah. Back. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you didn't watch the Beals. No, I just thought I'd make a no, but he wants little, to watch little four reference eight there. hours of yeah, Mesh Patel right. in, a, in a room, <laughs> eventually going up on a roof, which he does. Mm. He does. Just realised that. Yeah, very yeah. clever. Yeah. <laughs> See, it was all there. Yeah. Oh uh, dear lord. So yeah, but it looked good. Yeah, it looked good. It did look good. It looked very um, good. There was also Downton Abbey True Two. Yes! Oh god. I mean, I thought James. He hasn't seen it. He hasn't even seen I it. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. This is the worst thing in the world because otherwise I can bang on about it endless. Yeah. Well, uh, did well, we see the Marchioness of Hexham? Hot Marchionesses in your I, area. I, are I don't remember <laughs> which one is the Marchioness of Hexham. I so Lady maybe Edith. I do know. Lady, oh, we did. Lady Edith is in it. Yes. Also, we saw. Uh, Dominic West oh. is now in it. So as McNulty, movie, yes. yeah, I wish oh McNulty's dad. That'd be amazing. A movie crew comes to Downton, and he is, I think, the star. And Hugh Dancy seems to be connected in some way. I don't know. He's there looking handsome. So. Hugh Dancy, who, by the way, can we just say for a second, is in the Law and Order revival, which starts next week in the states, and I hope we get it over here as well because Law and Order is coming back. Jack McCoy is back, folks. So, this is original Law and Order returning, not the one where Statler and Waldorf or what That's it was Statler finally and got together how in dare you. Statler and Benson. That's what I mean. Yeah, them. How, From the Muppets. How dare you? How dare you? No, that's organised crime. That's last Law and Order organised crime, uh, which is which which brought Stabler back to the, the world of Law and Order SVU. No, I'm talking about the original, the Mothership Law and Order. Ding, ding. That one. The amazing dun, one. They all done, done. I mean, yes, they all done, done. But that originally done, done. Ding, ding. It's problematic. Like it has had a notably deleterious effect on like innocence. You've had a deleterious effect on innocence. I mean, I think but that's Helen, harsh. It's amazing. Okay, Is it but though? Like, but jurors who watch a lot of Law and Order. Are they rural jurors or just rural jurors? jurors? <laughs> rural jurors or urban but CSI jurors. CSI had a similar problem, didn't it? That CSI yep. also had a deleterious effect on their judicial yeah, system. Yeah, because, you know, people think that, oh, you know, my heroes every week get this right all bang, the bang. time. Yeah. Um, this must be super reliable. And it's often very much not. And so. they put an over reliance on forensic evidence as well, as a result mm -hmm. of the uh, CSI. Hey, so procedurals are bad. I've always said it. Listen, do not come for Dick Wolf and do not come for Jack McCoy. Sam Waterston is back. I am very excited about this. It's going to be back, back, back. And it is season 21 of Law & Order because it was about to break the record for the longest running live action drama. Mm -hmm. That's not Coronation Street, obviously. because Supernatural, Coronation, yeah, yeah, obviously, yeah. yeah. Well, Supernatural kidding, doesn't even get close. Uh, but it was about to go to oh, season 21 because it was level with Gunsmoke. Right. And then it got cancelled oh. unceremoniously. And now SVU has overtaken. I think SVU is in season 23, 24, maybe something like that. Um, uh, but now this is going to be back as season 21. So well, I shall have to have you on the Pilot TV podcast to talk about it. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Anyway. Can I talk about something that you probably didn't watch the trailer for? But if you did, you'll be with me. Chip and Dale. Rescue Rangers. Now, is this the strippers or the chipmunks? This is the chipmunks. Right. Um, so basically, it's coming to Disney. The idea is that they were big in the 90s. Chip and Dale had this stardom. It went to their heads. They started partying too hard with Roger Rabbit. Not kidding. <laughs> um, 
And and now it's a question of whether they can kind of come back to stardom. I'm not I'm not kidding. I cannot stress to you enough how much I'm not kidding. It's super, super meta and absolutely weird. And it's coming from the uh, Lonely Island guys. So Andy Samberg is now voicing Dale. Um, and you've literally got one of them getting a CG makeover and the other one, like, not being here for plastic surgery. Oh, okay. It looks crazy and very fun. See, I wasn't on board with this until you said Lonely Island. I thought that would get you on board. Yeah. Yeah. Cool beans. Cool beans. Cool beans. Cool whiskey. Cool beans. Cool beans. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. Some stuff. Anywho, also we should probably talk about Star Trek. We should. I can't believe it's taken this long and I'd forgotten to mention it. Star Trek is coming back. The Kelvin timeline lives. This is very, very exciting. Uh, the, the, there's going to be another... Weren't we mentioning this a mere week or two weeks ago? Like, whatever happened to the new Star Treks? And there is a new Star Trek. And it is coming with the original crew. And um, Well, I said the original I mean the crew. Original. The original Kelvin, <laughs> J.J. Abrams crew. Not like the original... Like, they're not bringing the everyone Chris back. The Chris Pine, from, Zachary, yeah, Quinto. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. That there lot. was such a simple way for you to say that. And sure. <laughs> <laughs> but I couldn't find it. No. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm psyched. Psyched. Happy to be here. Yes. Should we explain what this is? Star Trek. Thanks, James. <laughs> yeah, um, so J.J. Abrams announced it this week that they're um, uh, at work on the new film. It will be shooting by the end of the year. It will be featuring their original cast and some new characters. Well, duh. No word yet on particularly what the story will be, um, but um, we do have uh, WandaVision's Matt Shackman uh, was attached, um, so I think he still is. Uh, yes, I believe so. Um and there's been some writers kind of in and out, but I think Avatar 2's Josh Friedman and WandaVision's Cameron Squires seem to have taken over recently from Lindsay Beer and Gen uh, Geneva Robertson Dwarrett. Hold so, my beer. There you go. Um, and there were rumors of uh, there's there were rumors around for a long time of the you know Chris Hemsworth time travel crossover, yes. but I don't know if that's. No, so be it, part of it or not. this is obviously a project that's been in development for many, many years because mm -hmm. Star Trek Beyond came out, I want to say 2016 now, but it may it even be 2015. Like a long time ago. Uh, like by relative standards, it was a long time ago. I think if I were to actually say the year, we'd all feel very old. Mm. <laughs> uh, and it didn't do very well. It actually apparently lost money for Paramount. Um, so that's one of the reasons why but, they didn't rush into making the Star Trek 4. And then over the years, they have looked at various directors, S.J. Clarkson, people like that. I believe... Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino was obviously looking around, but that wasn't Star Trek 4. That was no. something else. Yeah. I think Noah Hawley was at one point connected right, to this yeah. as well. So that they've been trying to make this happen. And yes, as you say, at one point, the closest they came to getting something off the ground was a story that would have somehow seen Kirk... Chris Pines, Kirk, Sarkar Quinto as Spock, Carl Urban's Bones, so he's on Dana Zuhura, uh, and obviously, of course, now, sadly, not Anton Yelchin's uh, Chekhov, mm. but, you know, Simon Pegg, Scotty, John Cho, Sulu, all the gang, somehow interacting with Chris Hemsworth's George Kirk, yeah. who made such a memorable impact at the beginning of the first Abrams movie. I don't think that's happening anymore, because yeah. that, that probably would have bankrupted Paramount <laughs> alone. Yeah. So, but this is exciting. And they announced this as part of <laughs> the most romantic notion in movies, which was a investor's phone call. So Paramount Four. did a, an investor's phone call. And at the same investor's phone call, it was also announced by John Krasinski, no less, mm. that he um, 
well, seems to be at work, but he certainly announced A Quiet Place Part 3, which is not to be confused with The Quiet Place spin-off that Pigs Michael Sarnowski is going to write and direct. This is going to be something that John Krasinski will be overseeing, although it was not officially confirmed whether he'd be writing and directing it. But he did say we'll have a release date of 2025. And so that would seem to indicate, because he's working on a film called If, alongside Steve Carell and Ryan Reynolds... That's going to come out in 2023. So if you were a betting person, you would say that that means that Krasinski will then move on to writing and directing A Quiet Place Part 3 after that. possible. So there's a lot of exciting stuff on that investors phone call. I hope those investors were well pleased by what they heard. But the last thing I'm going to talk about this week in the news section is very, very, very sad news. Woke up to this on Monday morning that the great Ivan Reitman, the director of Stripes, and Ghostbusters, and Legal Eagles, and Dave, and all sorts of incredible films, passed away at the age of just 75, which mm. is wild because this guy has been a part of my cinema-going life f- f- since forever. So, you know, I thought he was much older than 75. Yeah. 75 yeah. is no age at all. Uh, he passed away at the weekend. Uh, what a loss. Yeah, he really was. I mean, I think he's been a part of all our childhoods and indeed adulthoods God, as yeah. well, you know. Um, Twins, Kindergarten Cop, Junior, all the, you know, good Arnold comedies. Uh, <laughs> loved him, just loved his stuff so much. And also we spoke to him like really recently as well. Like yeah. he was doing press for, for Ghostbusters Afterlife, you know. It's, yeah, it feels very, again, because like, that is no age at all really in this day and age. Mm. And because he was so present and he was so, you know, vocal and in the public eye for that film, it, yeah, it just kind of really came blindsided shock, yeah, me. Absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, there's an argument that he was one of the, the people most responsible for the sort of 80s comedy boom. Mm. Like Animal House genuinely hit Hollywood like a train in terms of the, the success of that movie and the fact that nobody really saw it coming. Um, was was massive. But then to go from that to to obviously Ghostbusters to all the likes, the ones you mentioned, you know, twins and everything else, uh, is is kind of astonishing. We were talking, we, I think both of us on Twitter immediately said, I'm going to watch Dave, mm-hmm. um, which I feel like, you know, people don't talk about enough. Like it's, it's absolutely a delightful film. I feel like it got overshadowed by the American president and then the West Wing, but it's a brilliant, brilliant kind of political comedy. And I think more people should see it. Yeah. It's a tough one. Because the natural default position is to go, what's your favourite Ivan Reitman film? And it's Ghostbusters, it right? Is, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously it, 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 it is. Yeah, but, but Dave's the up time, there. Yeah. Dave is up there. It's um, like a, you know, Dave's a fantastic film. It's very close to being perfect in, in mm. a strange way. And it's very, very low key, obviously very Capra-esque comedy, but Kevin Klein is incredible in it. Um, Scorny Weaver, of course, working with Scorny Weaver again. Mm-hmm. And he just seemed to be... Uh, one of those non kind of no nonsense directors who didn't let anything get in the way of the jokes or the story and he just seemed to have a real way about him yeah. um with material he understood innately what was funny what wasn't and uh, of course he he was so much more than just a director as well he was very important as a producer also he uh he was he was canadian um or grew up in canada certainly and uh was instrumental in uh, in in putting Canadian cinema on the map. He produced a couple of David Cronenberg's early films mm. as well. And was just someone who seemed to be so full of life and vitality. Uh, also, you know, I've, I never interviewed him. I had the, um, I, can't, I almost had the chance to interview him whenever he came over last year with Jason Reitman. Uh, obviously, I regret not taking it now, but uh, uh, I decided to focus on talking to Jason Reitman alone. Because you think, 
oh, it's fine. I'll get him on the next one. Mm-hmm. Weirdly enough, I spoke to Jason Reitman for Ghostbusters Afterlife for the for the DVD. In fact, that's in the new issue as well, an interview with Jason Reitman. And he he was telling me about, this is maybe a couple of weeks before his dad passed away. And he was telling me about how for Ghostbusters Afterlife, Bill Murray couldn't be around for one of the shots. And so they got his dad to put on the flight suit, Bill Murray's flight suit. Um, although there's also a shot of him, I've seen I've seen a shot this week yeah. where he was actually wearing Egon's flight suit. So maybe maybe, maybe there were two different flight suits. Maybe something's quite maybe got lost in translation there. I don't really know. But yeah, he got to see his dad for the first time. But he'd never worn Ivan Reitman had never worn a Ghostbusters costume before. Aww. So that was a, an amazing thing. So there's a moment of think of um, Bill Murray's hands uh, firing the proton pack, and that's actually Ivan Reitman's hands yeah. in Ghostbusters Afterlife, which now it was already a poignant movie. Yeah, that now it feels it does, even more. Yeah, it, do, it does give an extra emotional impact, and it already, as you said, had mm. had a huge amount. But like he was still, you know, active and working, and and so kind of full of life. It, it really is a shock. I think these days, seventy five is no age at all. No age so. at all. Ivan Reitman, who died this week at the age of seventy five. Time now for our last guest this week. Uh, Cyrano was meant to come out in January, but was delayed because of something I like to call COVID nineteen. Don't know what you guys call it. And it is now coming out next week. It is going to be out next week. Joe Wright's reimagining of the Steve Martin classic Roxanne. And I'm only kidding, Helen. Don't don't attack me. Don't attack me. No, I know. I mean, yeah. Joe Wright's reimagining of the classic Bergerac starring John Nettles. Oh and uh, it stars Peter Dinklage as Cyrano this time around. And you know Peter Dinklage. He was Tyrion. Mm. In Game of Thrones. He was. I know that. You're, you're very familiar I'm with Game of Thrones. Yeah. Big, big fan of Game of Thrones. But he is an amazing actor in everything from The Station Agent and the X-Men Days of Future Past and Elf and, of course, Game of Thrones. Uh, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. I care a lot. Uh, just an incredible, incredible actor. And, of course, now Cyrano. Joel Wright's Cyrano. And Hannah Flint making her podcast debut on the Empire podcast, she does other podcasts, uh, was the one who spoke to Peter Dinklage just before Christmas, I think. So here we go. Hannah Flint talking to Peter Dinklage. I don't know what they talked about. Probably about Cyrano. Probably about Cyrano. So here we go. Do please enjoy. Hello, Mr. Peter Dinklage. It's Hello, Hannah. Hannah. How are you? Is it? Hannah, is it right? Yeah. It's Hannah, yes. Um, I've sprint, pretty much sprinted back from the screening. So I've got Cyrano. Like it's oh infiltrating boy. my brain. I can't stop thinking about it. And I'm sorry, suppose, is that a good thing? <laughs> it's a great thing. But the okay. thing that I thought about most was, did you expect to be traversing a snowy mountain so soon after Game of Thrones? Were you like, this is, I've done that life. It's over for me. It was, it was a snowy active volcano is what, yes. what, what it was. <laughs> we had to one up Game of Thrones. We never shot on, on an active volcano. At least I didn't. They maybe did in Iceland. Um, no, it was a joy. I love, love, love all of that. You don't have to act cold. You just are <laughs> cold. You don't have to act like you're falling down. You're really falling down because you're <laughs> shooting out of on a vertical lava flow. So it was it was incredible. I'm gonna say you're 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 very convincing on those falls, and now we know why. Exactly. <laughs> improv, improv. Yes, so, exactly. So has Cyrano been on your kind of bucket list of roles? Like everyone's got a kind of thing they want to play. Has that been long been on your list that you wanted to do this? You know, it really wasn't until Erica Schmidt, our, our adapter and screenwriter, created this version of it. Um, I had always had a, a strange relationship with the with with Cyrano, myself personally, because for me, it was just a 
there was a handsome actor and a fake nose. And, and I thought, what's he going off about? Um, um, not to say it wasn't, those weren't brilliant iterations. I love the Gerard Depardieu film. And, and um, I haven't seen that many. Steve Martin's Roxanne is so much fun. I absolutely adore them. But it was never on my radar to play the role um, because I just thought it wasn't just, it was never going to happen because it was a different story to be told than, 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 than something I would, you know, be offered at least. Um, and then this was created and I sort of, I hitched my pony to the wagon because I, I sort of fell in love with it. I fell in love with the idea of taking away the nose, um, which therefore sort of make, it's not about that anymore. It's about just one man's incapability of telling the woman he loves that he does because he's terrified. He's brave in other aspects of his life, but he's a walking contradiction because he's terrified of doing that, um, that, um, with Roxanne. And, uh, I, I don't know. And I think the idea of like making those very long speeches about love into love songs was such a brilliant modern way in to the story as well. And you really don't need to really update this classic piece. It's just these classics are classic for a reason because they still speak to us a hundred years from now. Yeah. Um, Cause it's all about the human connection and, 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 and the heartbeat um, that we all share um, or hope to share. Um, but I do feel those two choices, the nose and making these songs was just such a brilliant inspired idea. Cause I like a nose. I think a strong nose is great. But the yeah. Steve Martin one, I mean, Roxanne right. was my... was Maybe my I was jealous of the nose. Ah. <laughs> the Steve Martin one is kind of ridiculous. You kind right. of like... Well, it's that. a Steve Martin comedy. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> That's the one I had. That's the one we had on VHS that I watched several times. Yes, um, great, great film. <laughs> so, I mean, I suppose you had a, a, a kind of a first dibs situation potentially on this character obviously with Erica doing it, you know, what was the situation when you knew that she was going to be writing it? Was it kind of like, okay, how do I finesse? How do I finesse this? this? Well, I knew how, you know, the organic way in which you build a, a, a production, you often start with readings in your home. You get some actors together who are good friends. Bryce and Aaron came over, the, the guys who wrote all the music, and we would sit around the kitchen table in our house and read through it. I just happened to be there making coffee for everyone and said, are you need anybody here to read one of these roles? <laughs> and I guess because, uh, you know, I was there, um, I got to read the part of Cyrano. And as soon as I read it out loud with the other actors, I definitely uh, wouldn't let it go. <laughs> I was like a pit bull. I was just, I just held on tight and hoped for the best. You got your agent to contact Erica's agent. Basically, yeah. Look. Basically, yeah. I, <laughs> I, I had I had lawyers fly in um, on their private planes to, to sign up, <laughs> drop some paperwork. Yeah, you know, you got a good church and state. You got to make it official. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, but how is that though? Because I think you know, there's long been you know couples who work together in the creative world, but like it has that. I mean, had you worked together before? Was this kind of a? I suppose a. Uh, you may maybe put it off in case like it was a bit too close, like working, working on stage, working at home. No, we had, worked on, we had worked on several theatrical productions before we did Uncle Vanya. We did ah. Moliere. We did um, uh, uh, something else that I can't remember right now. Um, uh, it, it, it's always been real joy. It's the same where you work, get to work with actors you've worked with before or other 
directors who aren't your partner. It's just, it's, that, it's just basically that familiarity, that trust that's inherently built in and friendship that when you go into other projects, nine times out of 10, it's de- it develops, but you don't have that going in. So you're a little, you're a little, you're, you're everybody's circling each other a little bit. You're a little, you know, you're, everybody, you're a little suspicious of each other subconsciously or whatever it is. And you don't, you don't have that uh, working relationship yet. Uh, and you're already filming love scenes and it's awkward and strange. And you're thrust into these emotionally charged environments with basically strangers um, who quickly usually become your close friends because people in my line of work are quite often lovely and amazing. Um, uh, they like to hug a lot. So that, that always helps. Not during this production, during pandemic the pandemic. Be damned, <laughs> actors still hug, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's just, it really is just that the familiarity. And of course, Eric and I have that. Uh, and then some, um, so that's just really helpful. Joe Wright, I mean, he knows his way around a classical lit adaptation. Yeah, I mean, it was incredible. Joe came, speaking of significant others, Joe came to see the show merely because Haley Bennett, his partner, was playing Roxanne. And in doing so, he ended up falling in love with the production and being inspired to make a film version. So then I suppose for you, getting that from stage to screen, I mean, obviously you were keeping on board and you're kind of very all close knit together. So what was that experience like and working out how we would translate this um, into a cinematic format? And also, I suppose there's the the freedom to expand it in, I suppose, more literal ways and more extravagant ways as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Totally different art forms, obviously. You know, for some actors, including myself, being up on stage and having that live uh, audience response. Um, is there's, there's, that's a thrill. It's much like musicians recording an album in a studio and playing live, going on tour and playing in front of their fans. It's that sort of, you can draw that same comparison. They're very different, but one is, you know, one is very thrilling. And with, but with the film version, the adaptation, Joe is really smart and he, he changed quite a number of things from the stage production as you need to um, when translating from one, one art form to the next. I think if you're too loyal to an adaptation of a book, why make it, make it your own, you know? Um, so we were allowed though, we were allowed the close up. We were allowed the intimacy that film affords, um, quiet moments. Uh, um, they're different on film because the camera is right up there in front of you. Mm-hmm. And I could sing quietly, speak quietly. And when you're singing in the theater, you, you want to make sure everybody hears you and you you do that old turn out and project when you sing a song and the classic style, but you didn't have to do that with film because you'd be singing a song and nobody would be in the room with you. The crew would be, but you wouldn't, it's not a performance. It's just, it's just an intimacy that is kind of lovely. Yeah. And I think the fact that you're clearly all singing live, I think the last time I'd seen something like that was like maybe Les Mis. Um, yeah. And I suppose was that, I don't know. I think you haven't, I'd, you haven't really done a musical in that like this way before. Uh, I never done a musical period. No, so like I suppose I'm just thinking of like because again, you're the way this is done is less about having that specific musical theatre like vibrato, like really strong right. out. How did I suppose you prepare for that? And was it kind of nerve wracking? I mean, when Russell Crowe did it, I, I feel bad for him. He got a lot of flat for it. Was that quite nervous? The idea, oh God, it's one thing to do it on stage, but now I'm doing it in a film, and there could be some pushback about. <laughs> oh <laughs> sure, you, voice. You, yeah. I mean, you can't be concerned with any criticism or pushback if that happens. That's that's light years from when you're making it. Um, and who cares? 
Um, you just pour your heart into it and hope for the best. Um, but yeah, I, I love the live singing. I couldn't imagine doing it any other way. I know a lot of movie musicals do it the other way, but lip syncing along to a pre-recorded version of myself just would be not only embarrassing and hilarious, it would just wouldn't have the same emotional resonance in the scene because it's just like delivering a line that's dubbed. It just doesn't make sense for mm. me to do it any other way now that I've done it once this way. Um, because oftentimes you're singing across from another actor. Um, so you need that emotional connection in, in, in your voice and mm. whatever you're going through on that day, if your voice cracks, you know, it's, it might be okay. It doesn't have to be perfect. I think a lot of times we, we want everything, especially in music these days to be so clean and perfect as opposed to like embracing the happy mistakes and, and the imperfections in a voice and the soul of a voice. Cause uh, you know, some of my favorite singers, they're not operatic, operatic uh, singers. They're just, they're just really soulful singers. It's sort of like, and that tells the story more mm. clearly as well, I think. This year, I feel like it's maybe the new golden age of musicals. There's been so many coming out right now. We've got In the Heights. Yeah. I know, I love it. I love musicals. Yeah. What, 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 are your, what are your musicals? What's your favorite? Oh, well, my gosh. You know, I mean, West Side Story. I'm, God, God rest Stephen Sondheim. He was, the, he was the master. He was the absolute master at what he did. Sweeney Todd is one of my all-time favorites. Um, I remember seeing that when I was a kid, uh, a videotape of, of the original production with Angela Lansbury, and it just blew my mind because it was here. You know, usually I thought musicals were the domain of like singing sailors and girls in distress. And suddenly you have a thing about a guy making meat pies out of humans. It's like, <laughs> it was so dark and spoke to me and on a teenage level so deeply. And that was like amazing. And it's so smart. It's, it's one of the greatest musicals in my opinion, ever written. Um, uh, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, they're, they're all, they're all so much fun. Has it given you the bite now? Could you see yourself like, okay, maybe this is my new flex. <laughs> Definitely. I'm not going to jump into another musical anytime <laughs> soon, but perhaps down the road, I like to mix it up a bit <laughs> and, not repeat, <laughs> and not repeat myself too much, but yeah, no, it was, it was a great thrill for sure. And that's all I, I'm looking for is a challenge and a thrill. Yeah. I'm just on this. I was reading some of the notes and it said that you actually took a souvenir from your a, a waggy dog souvenir from your yeah. shoot of this. You got yourself, you got yourself a dog and you've taken yeah, it back. She kind of found us. We found her. It was easier to get a dog back home to America during the pandemic than a person. <laughs> um, they're like, fine. Dogs don't carry the COVID. Um, uh, no, we, yeah, there was, there's a lot of, uh, um, homeless dogs and where we were living and, uh, you know, taken care of They have a great life out there in the countryside because it's Sicily and it doesn't get too cold. And, uh, but then when the shelter came to get these puppies, we, we, we instead took one and brought her home, Roxy I named after that. Roxanne. And she's about a year old now. She's, she's, uh, she's a New York dog now. Oh, I love that. I mean, do no. you know, is that, do you normally take things? I mean, I know this dog Teddy was in the film, but like, do you often keep souvenirs from stuff when you've been shooting away? I, I, I definitely take clothes. Um, I, I befriend the costume designers early on. <laughs> if it's sort of, you know, I'm not going to take Cyrano's costume home because that would draw some attention to myself walking hey, down. Hey, look, Brooklyn, Williamsburg. You know, I know. You all I, look great. I would probably fit in in Brooklyn <laughs> wearing that. Um, 
but no, I got, I could definitely have gotten some free clothes out of some movies that I still wear today. Was it, I care a lot because you looked very sharp in that film. Oh, cheers. Yeah, no, I got a, yeah, I, I think I brought home a coat from that one. Nice suede jacket. Yeah. <laughs> so I suppose then, you know, intentional kind of roles that you've been taking, um, you know, after, again, after doing Game of Thrones for so long, are you kind of, what, how, what's your thought process in selecting like the next things that you do? Always never repeat yourself. I mean, and I'm not jumping at the bit to uh, get into a long-term TV commitment like Game of Thrones was. Cause you know, that's, that's a, that's, that's not just a TV show. That was 10 years from top to bottom, 10 years of my life. You know, um, I live in Ireland half the year, every year for 10 years. So it's a big commitment, especially when you have family. Um, Cause when, you know, when the kids are little, you get to bring them everywhere, but then they start school and yeah. you're off on your own again. And you just have to really, as you get older, you have to really consider all of that when choosing a project. Unlike when you're young, you sort of are up for going anywhere at any time. That doesn't really happen as older when you get older and have children. But yeah, and I'm fortunate enough to having done Game of Thrones to be in a position where perhaps I get to choose uh, my next gig more than some other people because I know what it was like when it was just you got to go and get a gig to pay the bills and put food on the table. Um, and that that is not to be underestimated. Um, but yeah, it's great because it's a great time right now because there's so many projects out there with streaming and Netflix and movies and everything. Uh, so many actors and, and, and crew are employed right now. And, and it's 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 a great time. Do you have a I, I suppose are there is there a role? I suppose that you're waiting to play or that you'd kind of love the opportunity. That's like once I, well, at one point, this has got to be something that I do, you know, like the King Lear, what's your King Lear role? It's King Lear. <laughs> it's King Lear. But that's, that's, that's a few years down the road, down the way. What are you saying? I can play King Lear? Oh, I can have grown children. Hey, look, um, if they can, if they can age people up and age people down, like the Irishman, true. I think you're sort I feel like, but you, yeah, you can't cheat it with King Lear. You gotta, you gotta <laughs> know what it's like to be an old timer for real and not be a computer generated old timer. I don't know. You know, I've never, I've never done a science fiction film. Like I've never been in space. I've always wanted, I love like the Ridley Scott, alien films and all that stuff. And um, I'm, I'm looking for a good sci-fi movie next. I don't know where it is, but I'm going to find it. I mean, technically you were in space in Avengers Endgame. <laughs> was that space? I don't know where I was. <laughs> You're I, lying. Thought I, was in, I thought I was in Atlanta, Georgia uh, with a tiny cardboard cutout of Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> <laughs> in many ways, it, did feel, it felt like space, but... Uh, <laughs> I love, I mean, I love that you've, I feel like now it's, it's so interesting how you can just, th there's so many comic book movies around that's like, oh my God. yeah, I can do, I can do the Fox yeah. Marvel. What's the next? Nerds, DC. <laughs> the nerds have taken revenge. Yeah. But, I mean, is that the end? Was that just kind of like, I'm just going to come in a day or whatever. I'll do that for a little bit. Are you kind of done oh. with the MCU? Um, well, there's another Thor movie there, isn't there, coming out that Taika has directed. What? I didn't say anything. What? I didn't say anything. Wait. Wait. What? 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 Yeah. Sorry. What? No, it's, 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 <laughs> if you if you die in a Marvel movie, it doesn't mean it's your last Marvel movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, That's we all know comic thing. books. It doesn't no. matter. <laughs> you can make somebody can make a TV. Now there's TV shows. It's 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 Marvel world. We're just well, all part of it. But you're also doing another. Well, you're doing a Toxic Avenger. Yes, if that IMDb was great fun. is to be trusted. <laughs> yes, I have Macon Blair, who's an incredible writer director. I don't know if you've seen the movie. Um, I don't feel at home in this world anymore on Netflix. You should really oh, yes. check that movie out. That was his 
debut as a both writer and director. He's he's written a lot of scripts and he's he's a great actor as well. But this is his second feature as a writer director, and it's 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 kind of a remake of the original, but not at all a remake um, because it has the same spirit, but it definitely has perhaps let's just say a bigger budget and. Uh, <laughs> And some some really great actors like Kevin Bacon and and, and uh, Elijah Wood, yeah. That's gonna be fun. It's fun, yeah. I, I I become a monster. Avengers who? Toxic Avengers? Yes, please. Put yeah, that poster toxic, on my wall. Toxic Avengers. Yeah. <laughs> well, it would be remiss of me uh, to not mention as it's the festive season and it's been eighteen years since Elf came out. I mean, for you, I suppose being. It, what does it mean to be in a film where it's just got this, it's the Christmas movie now? You never know when you're making it, but it's like become... Yeah, it's up there. It's up there with, yeah, Christmas Carol and Christmas Story. It's it's up there. It's definitely top five of all time, for sure. Do you, I suppose, is, is it something, I know, do you watch your stuff? Is it something that you even enjoy watching again at Christmas time? What is your Christmas film? Oh, I love a Christmas story. Uh, the... Uh, Peter Billingsley movie about the kid in the fifties. Uh, you know, that's, you know, you know, that movie with the, yeah, kid. yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a real dark comedy. Um, uh, yeah. And I love the old, I think it's Alistair Sims, uh, Scrooge, the old black and white version. That's, uh, oh, oh boy, what, a, what a peculiar child. Um, <laughs> um, um, what a strange boy. Uh, those things are just so much fun and they're just so comforting to settle down with by a fireplace and watch these old films. I love, I love it. And I've got to ask you the question that we ask every year for some reason, but I feel like I go get your take. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Yeah. Thank you. There for, we go. For sure. <laughs> That's official. No Come one can on. ask this question ever again. Great film. One of the greatest action movies ever made. It is. Incredible. I love it so much. And also a great, a great Christmas movie. Absolutely. Well, Merry Christmas, Peter Dinklage. Thank you so much. Thank you. Merry Christmas to you, love. See ya. Bye. Bye. Okay, so that was Peter Dinklage. We'll be talking about Cyrano on next week's show. Oh, yes, indeed, folks. And in case you couldn't already tell from the complete and utter change in the quality of the sound, we are no longer in the pod booth. We are now doing this remotely on Squadcast. It is not even Thursday anymore. It is, in fact, Friday, the 18th of February. And Helen and I Hello. Uh, are here on Squadcast. No James. James was barren hard out, uh, which is why we weren't able to do the review <laughs> section of the show in the pod booth yesterday. And he is not here either. So it falls to Helen and I in the middle of a massive fucking storm. Storm Eunice <laughs> is currently battering Britain and London. American listeners are going, that's just a storm. That's just a light storm compared to the twisters and the hurricanes and the things that, that be, uh, besiege us from time True. to time. But uh, it's pretty big. And the O2, which is not too far away from where I live at the moment, is being just torn shreds, basically, at the moment. And the the entire nation seems glued to Big Jet TV, which is watching uh, airplanes and jumbo jets trying to land at Heathrow in the middle of Storm Eunice, which is quite the thing. Haven't yeah. been able to bring myself to watch more than 10 seconds of that because I just thought it was too much. Yeah, but but all credit to the pilots who are really earning their pay today. My God, they all need a bonus. But uh, but yeah, everybody stay safe out there. Hope you've got power. Hope you've got everything going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Uh, so, reviews section, Hells Bells. Mm. Uh, let's, uh, let's try and... <laughs> 
ignore the gale blowing outside. Every now and again, there's a thump and a bang and something whooshes past the window. Uh, I saw a woman on a walker being blown out. Blow, mm. Not blown out, but she was being blown along and she literally had to hug a lamppost. Wow. Uh, to, uh, you know, I thought about going down and helping her, but she was already in the Thames by that point. So... I saw a woman on a bicycle with a little dog in the front just flying past. It's crazy. <laughs> I saw a house land on a witch. What? <laughs> no, can Madness. you imagine what's going on? <laughs> it's absolutely wild. Anyway, we're not in Kansas anymore, but we are uh, about to embark upon the review section of the show. What's out this week in your multiplex and your sofa plex? Let's start with the return of Chanum. Shall mm. we? Yes. Janine Tatum is back, back, back. He has taken something of an extended hiatus from movie making, uh, bar a brief cameo in Free Guy from last year. Uh, but he is back, back, back in big, big style this week with Dog, a film in which he not only stars, but also directed as well. Yeah, exactly. Along with Reed Carolyn, who wrote uh, Magic Mike with him, or helped write Magic Mike with him. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, this is, I was not, ready for what this film actually is. Um, I thought it was going to be another, you know, story about a guy who gets a dog and, you know, hilarity in shoes. And it is, but it's also kind of about trauma and uh, PTSD and war wounds and being bred and trained for something that you can't then do anymore. Uh, because there's there's a surprising amount going on. I literally just expected Channing Tatum and a dog. So he plays Briggs, who's an, a former army ranger. He's had to leave the service on medical grounds after an injury in combat. So this is all kind of alluded to rather than specified uh, to mm-hmm. a great degree. And he's trying to get back into kind of private security work or something. He's just waiting for that medical certificate and for his uh, commanding officer to sign off on it so he can, you know, start his big new career, hopefully, in in some kind of um, security capacity. And then one of his old comrades dies and he goes back to, you know, to toast him with the guys. And his commanding officer says, look, I will write this letter on one condition. You have to take your friend's dog, who was again a military trained dog. He's been trained to attack. He's been trained to sniff out drugs. He's been trained to go off at a, you know, at the drop of a hat um, to the guy's funeral. That's what mm-hmm. we need you to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a kind of road trip movie with a dog with emotional issues and a guy with emotional issues trying to work through their issues and kind of work together and find some kind of new, maybe possibly stability. Or right. not, because otherwise the dog is going to be euthanized. Uh oh. So high stakes, genuinely, and um, it's actually very charming. It's a very good animal performance, I thought, from Chanum. No, I'm kidding. From hey, uh, come on now. Hey, hey, come on. From the dog, um, but it, it, you know, it doesn't kind of, it doesn't kind of overlook the fact that this this animal has real issues because he has been bred, or she has been bred. Her name is Lulu. She has been bred to fight people. She has been bred to attack first and ask questions later. And you know, like she's now tr- very much like you. And she's now trying to adjust to, to civilian life. So it's a bit silly at times, um, but generally speaking, I was quite charmed by this. And and overall, I thought it was really really effective. And how's how's Channum? Because we we like a bit of Channum, don't we? He's we do. he's very versatile. But has he forgotten how to act in the in the interim? No, I think he does very well. I think he's um, you know, he he. It's kind of all beats he's played before. I mean, I seem to remember him in Stop Loss a few years ago playing a, a role not entirely dissimilar to this. Uh, but 
he is very good at that kind of manly man struggling with his feelings kind of a thing. You know, there, there's a reason that they hire him for those roles. And I think he does give a little bit of depth and empathy to Briggs and and does genuinely make you see it as a dilemma. Like he really does want rid of this dog who really has destroyed his truck and, and, and is, you know, he is literally there as a transactional issue. He is just trying to get the dog from A to B so he can then, you know, have his new fancy, fancy career. Mm. And and yet, you know, you can still see a kind of fellow feeling growing between them despite his best efforts. So I, I was genuinely charmed by both of them. I think it's a really good relationship story. Some of the stuff on, along the way does feel very OTT. You know, there, there's a little bit of kind of Hollywoodness creeping in here and there. But the meat of the story, I thought, worked really well. 14 stars in for the dog, obviously. <laughs> obviously, uh, they're three all good dogs. Stars. Yes, they're all good dogs. Uh, three stars are all good Channings uh, as well. So that's yeah. a recommendation, folks. That, as is. we always say in the podcast, that yeah. is a recommendation. He's got a lot of stuff coming up. My God, that is blowing the gale outside right now. Uh, he's got The Lost City. He's about to do Magic Mike's Last Dance. There's a film called Spaceman. So he is making up for lost time. Happy days. Not that he's really properly been away, but I guess the last... Just looking at this, the last movie that you could I say was hung around him would be, uh, or well hung around him, uh, was Logan Lucky, I guess, in 2017. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. It's been cameos and uh, and voice performances. Mm. So there you go. Anyway, three stars in for Dog. Another bonus, I guess, of the delay and holding back the review section until this afternoon on Friday is that it gave me the chance to watch The Texas Chainsaw Massacre on Netflix mm. today. And you're thinking, well, Chris, you must have seen The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It came out in the mid-70s. It's one of the classics of the horror genre. You like your horror. Of course you've seen it. Well, yes, I've seen that, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, and then you're thinking, well, Chris, are you talking about the 2003 remake of the Toby Hooper classic uh, which starred Jessica Biel and reimagined Leatherface, the chainsaw wielding maniac, as a character called Thomas Hewitt, which is also your dad's name. Are you talking about that movie, Chris? Have you not seen that movie? And I go, yes I have. And we sued for the damage it caused to the, the good Hewitt name, I, I, which I had already damaged by writing the Attack of the Clones <laughs> review just a year before. Hey. Uh, yes, I've seen that one. I'm talking about, bloody hell, Helen. Yeah. I'm talking about the new The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is on Netflix as of today, the 2022 version. And this is the latest in the long line of movies that have that are basically sequels to horror classics, but they also bear the same name as that classic. And this is very much carved from the same stone as the David Gordon Green Halloween, in that it is picking up, it, it retcons pretty much everything out of existence <laughs> all the the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 with the insane Never heard Dennis of it, Hopper Leatherface Chainsaw Fight the Texas Chainsaw Massacre sequel with Renny Selweger and Matthew McConaughey that has been retconned out of existence all right, the all remakes, right, all right. this prequel to the remake not all right or not all right not all right not all right <laughs> uh, they're gone now uh, basically this is saying there's just one original there's one Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie, and that is the original, the Toby Hooper original. And this picks up some nearly 50 years after that. Uh, and it's basically posits the idea that Leatherface, after that massacre, basically stopped Leatherfacing and, you know, wasn't in an asylum or anything like that. But he he was looking after his, his old dear family member played by Alice Krieg in this. And whenever a group of influencers move into his derelict Texan town 
something goes horribly wrong very, very quickly, and it prompts him to don the leather face, uh, bring out the chainsaw, and go a massacring. Now, this one is directed by David Blue Garcia, who I believe replaced another director or pair of directors. I think a Northern Irish pair of directors, actually. Uh, not too long after production had begun on this, uh, it is produced by Fede Alvarez, who, of course, has experience of doing this sort of thing with his version of, of Evil Dead, which was also a kind of sequel slash reboot. And you know what? It's, you know, you're going up against one of the greatest horror movies of all time. This really, I don't know if you've ever seen the original The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's really scuzzy and horrifying and atmospheric and just awful and an endurance test, but it, but an amazing, amazing one. Uh, the dinner table scene is one of the most horrifying things you will ever see. And this is very much a bit, again, like the David Gordon Green movies in that it almost invites you to root for Leatherface and to glory in all the killings that he does and it ramps up and amps up the level of gore in this there's a lot of killing in fact there's a scene in this where um, it lives off the title there is a chainsaw massacre it's a massacre you get a lot of people being killed by a chainsaw in Texas which I guess you could say didn't really apply to the first movie where he was kind of picking people off one by one and it's filled with gore and Elsie Fisher from 8th grade is solid as the lead and you know I appreciated it from a technical point of view and it's 75 minutes long something like that the credits are massively long in this thing but yeah I, I it, it didn't sit terribly well with me I have mm. to say there's some nice jokes in it there's some nice kills in it if that's, if that's your kind of thing but it's it's not even really trying I think to live in the same grounds tonally or in terms of its impact, psychological impact as the original movie. Uh, so I've I've only just I'm only about halfway through watching it, but I'm I'm already inclined to root against the you know non Leatherface members of the cast well, to the some fact degree. That makes them all influencers is interesting, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. But uh, it's it's so short; it doesn't really give you a chance to get into any character mm. development. And there's a there's a uh, I'm not even going to get into it, but there's there's a there's a character in this movie who I think they didn't need to bring into the film. Uh, but but hey ho hey ho, we I don't think have given this an official review yet because it wasn't screened to critics, shock horror, and it was only on Netflix over here at eight in the morning. So I'm not sure that uh, we've managed to get an official review cranked out. I'd give it two stars. Uh, you know, it's it's fine as these things go. But uh, I, I am looking for a little bit more, a little bit more for my Texas Chainsaw Massacres. And finally, in the review section this week, uh, I know, Helen, you've also seen the real Charlie Chaplin. Mm. Is that yes. is that is that worth is that documentary? Is, is that worth people's time? I think it actually is. It's um, for my money, a little bit overdone. You know, there's some like dramatic recreations that I'm not entirely sure we needed. Um, there's some bits which feel a little bit overcooked and over edited and sort of zhuzhed up beyond what's necessary. But I think the meat of the story is very good. I think they take a very balanced look at Chaplin, you know, both giving him kind of credit where it's due for his for his groundbreaking work, uh, first of all as a comedian and a, and a movie star, but also, you know, not looking away from the fact that all of his wives were teenagers when he met them um, and uh, even when he was in his 50s. Uh, so there was some icky aspects to his life and I think this this film gives an, a pretty rounded view of him. So so yeah, good, uh-huh. but I would say just a little bit OTT for me. 
Does it explain in any way, shape or form why he was spectacularly unfunny? Oh my God, I know you think this, but he is genuinely funny. I mean, he's not Buster Keaton mm. funny because who is? But is he, he though? Yes. There's some really funny bits in this, genuinely. All right, I'm not going to convince you. No, you are not. You are not. And I know people are screaming at their podcast device of choice right now, but Charlie Chaplin has never knowingly tickled my funny bone. But uh, but there you go. Perhaps uh, perhaps I am the one who's at fault here. You're a uh, monster. <laughs> I am a monster. Uh, and last but not least this week, it's another film that is on Netflix. It debuted last week. It is the return of the visionary genius Jean-Pierre Chunet, director, of course, of Delicatessen and Amelie and Alien Resurrection, lest we forget. <laughs> And this is a film called Big Bug. All one word, Big Bug. Yes, so this is set in the fairly near future um, and where everything is automated. So you have your uh, computer-controlled house, you have your robot maid, you have your robot vacuum cleaner. I already have one of those. You have um, <laughs> sort of robot security who are now empowered by law to do various things. They're a little bit robocop if Robocop was even creepier than he sometimes mm. is. Um mm. And that's all fine until the day that the machines rise up against humanity. Uh-oh. Uh-huh. Uh-oh. And so a whole group of people, like, um, basically we're in uh, Alice's house. Uh, she's played by Elsa Zil- Zilberstein. Um, she, uh, one of her neighbours has dropped by. Her ex-husband is dropping off their daughter. She's got a new boyfriend and his son who are there visiting. Everybody's in the house chatting away when the house locks down and they're told it's a dangerous situation outside and they're not allowed to leave. And of course, hijinks ensue and essentially robot apocalypse happens, kind of. Um, So (laughs) it's a story about where we are, I think, now, where we're going as a society, our relationship with technology, our relationship with humanity and and creativity and art and culture ourselves. Um, Mm -hmm. It's also really just like another, it's like a French farce. There's elements of bedroom farce here. And I find it, I have to say, a little bit wearisome. I do like Jeunet and and some of the stuff that mm. I find wearisome in this, I think, has worked really, really well in some of his other films. It felt um, like Jeunet by numbers for me. Yeah, it's like, it's like you know, Delicatessen, they don't act like human beings, but I don't mind because there's such a particular tone and colour to that film. In this one, they don't act like human beings and they exasperated me because I was just not really feeling it. So, you know, all of his usual people are there. Um, Isabel Nonti is is the neighbour who's visiting. There's a very kind of brief glimpse of, um, fuck, what do you call him outside? Dominic Pignon. Thank. There's a very gl- uh, brief glimpse of Dominic Pignon outside. You know, so there's all the all the usual suspects are present and correct. I just, it all, just well, didn't. Case Jose. Yeah, sure. Why not? No, absolutely not. Um, so I just, I don't know. I find it really frustrating. I, I don't mind a robot apocalypse. I, I think they can be interesting, wow. but not in real life, just like on screen. Mm. Um, but this one I thought was pretty unsuccessful for me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I mostly concur with that. Um, I found it a bit too frantic mm-hmm. and a bit too arch. Yes. Uh, but I, honestly, I have often had that problem with a lot of Shunei's work. And I know, I know a lot of people love Delicatessen and Delicatessen's great. Uh, City of Lost Children left me a bit cold. Uh, I like it, but don't love it. Yeah. yeah. Amelie is, is a classic. Amelie's, like, Amelie's amazing. 100%. Amelie's amazing. Very long engagement. Yeah. Yeah. Great fine. stuff. The problem with this is you don't get the weird, full weirdness of the robots if all the human beings are also super yes. freaking weird. So it's a little bit hard to kind of navigate yeah 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 
nice technical exercise though mm. for him to to do something like yeah. this. Um, but but there you go. Uh, we don't have a review of this one yet either. I think the the Empire review bots have risen up and refused to review it, uh, or they're working on it right now. One of the two. Maybe Storm Eunice has blown the review into the Thames. Anywho. <laughs> uh, Two stars, I'm thinking, is what you're, you're going for this? Sounds yeah. like you are. Obviously, we're not speaking for Empire here, but personally, mm-hmm. I would go two stars rather than three, I think. I, I, like I say, it, there is some there are some aspects that are good and mm-hmm. it is beautifully designed. It's a very cool looking house. I would I would be happy to move in without the robots. Mm-hmm. But uh, other than that, mm, no. Thank you. Not great. Not great. Don't worry, next week's much better. It is. Yeah. Next week is much better. There are films out next week that we can actually talk about and will be a lot of fun. Cyrano is just one of those films. The Duke is another one of those films. The 50th anniversary re-release of The Godfather and Studio 666 as well. Foo Fighters horror comedy. Woo-woo. Yes, please. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, anyway, okay, that's enough from our a little dip into the reviews waters they are churning the waters are churning because of storm units so it's time to get out and dry ourselves off and hand back to me in the studio yesterday wow who says we can't time travel back to me thank you chris and indeed on that note that is it for this week's empire podcast join us next week for more film-related fun, when me and james and helen will no doubt be once again in this gray depressing <laughs> pod booth uh, Spoiler, we won't be. Won't be? We hope not. Where will we be? I don't know. In a galaxy far, far away. Where will we be? <laughs> Where will we be indeed? From a certain point of view. Anyway. There's a bright centre of the universe. <laughs> we'll be in the place that it's farthest from. <laughs> you want to know where we're going to be? Um, I guess just check our social media feeds next week. <laughs> it will become rapidly apparent. Uh, thanks, James, by the way, for putting up that picture of me holding pilot. <laughs> You're very welcome. And thank yeah. you for the free advertising. Oh. We, we, we frankly, you it. need it. So. <laughs> uh, but I'm willing to boost your numbers by coming on and talking about um, Better Call Saul. That, that would be and good. indeed That'd Barry, be which season three of Barry. Indeed. April. Indeed. indeed. Although, although Beth, it turns out, is a big old Barry stand. She's very excited. Well, there you go. She wants to get Bill Hader on the show. Speaking of which, we have Stephen Knight on this week's episode of the Part TV podcast. Moon talking Knight? about the sixth and final no, the sixth and final season of Peaky Blinders. Does he know the difference between his waking life and, and dreams? dreams. <laughs> he may or may not. Oh. You'll have to listen to find out. Anyway, if you want, you can listen to that <laughs> show. <laughs> or you can listen to next week's Empire podcast, where we'll be joined by... Joe Wright. Hey. Joe Wright, director of Cyrano, and Dave... Grohl. Oh my god. The lead foo. <laughs> the lead fighter of foo. The chief fighter of all things foo will be on this podcast. Uh, I will be meeting him in person and once I've stopped crying I will ask him some questions. <laughs> oh, I cannot wait. Question list. Why are you so great? <laughs> yes. Will you be my friend? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> See question one. Repeat question two. Yes, pretty much. Question three is just a hug. <laughs> anyway, yes, I'm going to be in the same room as Dave, Dave Grohl. No one's thought this through. This could end badly for everybody. But anyway, very, very excited about that. So join us next week for more film-related fun. But until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from my two colleagues of such lethal cunning. James Dyer. Bye. And Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. I'm off to throw some clothes into a suitcase. I'm not saying why. I'm not going to tell you why. But I should say, the first transport is away. <laughs> Hooray!
The Empire podcast will be in range in five minutes. <laughs> uh, your tonton will freeze before you reach the first marker. <laughs> <laughs> then I'll see you in hell. See you next week. Bye.